VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, March the 2nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's the producer. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up your telephone. Give him a call to get in the queue and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, maybe you weren't tuned into the program yesterday when we spoke with Randy Atwood, who's the former executive director at the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, talking about what we could see if you had clear skies where you live when you gaze to the west just after sunset to see Jupiter and Venus looking like and apparently uh, somewhat conjoined, the conjunction that takes place about once a year. People seem to be caught off guard, thought it was UFOs or something else going on in the night sky, but of course it was Jupiter and Venus. And they look like they were aligned, coming very close together, but of course they're separated by a few hundred million kilometers. So anyway, that's what was going on in the night sky. And I heard Ben Murphy talking about it in the uh, morning show here on VOCM. But last night, the, at least for me, highly anticipated matchup between the New Jersey Devils and the Colorado Avalanche, of course, featuring two of our lads from this province playing in the bigs. Mercer in New Jersey and Newhook in Colorado. So, <clears throat> i tell you what. Mercer is absolutely one of the hottest players in the league at this moment in time. He scored again last night. It was his seventh straight game with a goal. It was the game winner. He was the first star. He added three assists for a four-point night, his first four-point night as a NHLer. And, of course, hasn't missed a game since he started his professional career. He is now with seven straight games with a goal, tied for the streaks of anyone in the NHL with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Now, McDavid, of course, is on another streak here. He's uh, scored at least two goals in six straight games. Ends the conversation about who's the best player in the world. But Nook chipped in with an assist as well. But Mercer, holy moly. All right, this is an interesting one for everyone who follows basketball, even if you just sort of under follow the game of NBA basketball. It was today in 1962, Philadelphia Warrior Center, Will Chamberlain scored his magical 100 points. That was today. So there was no televised press in attendance. So not only did he score 100 points that night, set five other records in that game, including the most free throws completed, and because it wasn't televised, no New York press were at the game, there's only some radio broadcasting from the fourth quarter that's been captured to document his 100-point night. So on the list of the most points in an NBA game, of course, that record set in 1962 remains at Chamberlain. Number two, the late great Laker Kobe Bryant with 81. And then it's Chamberlain, 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 David Thompson, Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, Chamberlain, Chamberlain. In the top 10 most points scored in an NBA game. 100 points today in Histoire. And in the music business, uh, 1983 saw the release of CDs and the compact disc players for the first time. Went to, for a while, kind of replaced vinyl. But now, of course, vinyl is all the rage again. So people embrace whether it be some of that potential skips and some of the noises that comes from your, your vinyl records. I'm back into the vinyl business, and I love it. But it was 83 where we got those... CDs and the CD players. All right. So the provincial government here has followed suit with the American government, the federal government here in the country, the European Commission, and they banned TikTok on government devices. I've had a lot of people send me emails saying, you know, can we get on to dealing with the big issues and the big items in this world? Fair ball. But if this is a preventative measure, the government says there have been no indications that there's been any breach because of the use of TikTok on any government devices. 
But across the board, whether it be in this country, the United States, European Commission, they do say that it's quite clear that it opens up the opportunity for more cyber attacks. So, for starters, there's no real need to have TikTok on your government device. That's not really what it's for. So they've gone ahead and banned it as of today. Probably okay. Still big questions about how the information is stored and disseminated, that is garnered through your participation on the old TikTok, but it's gone as of now. Sticking with the social media kind of stuff. We know that it's really changed the world and sharing information, and it looked like it was going to be very beneficial to society. I would suggest probably not even though I do use Twitter. So this most recent report coming from the CDC down in the United States about Youth Risk Behavior Survey. It's talking about the impact of social media on teens. And, you know, we all have these conversations with our children about what they see, how it makes them feel, what to do about it, what they should or should not be doing on the potentially dark corners of the Internet. But the results here are not great. It shows that most teen girls, 57%, now say they experience persistent sadness or hopelessness. That's up from 36% in 2011. 30% of teen girls now say they've seriously considered suicide. That's way up from 19% in 2011. The boys' trends are, are also up, but nowhere near the same as teen girls. And I'm not sure what the reasons why would be. But we know that, you know, for people who are using social media, sometimes what we see is simply not real. You know, people post the photos of themselves, like videos themselves, in their brightest and most shiny moments, you know, where they're enjoying life to the fullest and using the filters to make them look more glamorous than they really are. And their travel hotspots and their delicacies on their plate as they travel around to visit the Tony restaurants. And not everyone lives like that. So, and then it becomes the pile-on that people experience. Because it's easy to get dogpiled on social media, I know firsthand because this happened to me many times. So, you know... No one wants to feel left out. You want to see what's shaking. You want to know what's going on on people's Instagram and on their TikTok or their Facebook or their Twitter or whatever. But there are some downsides to it. Because what might be very helpful and beneficial to you is probably not for many others who are using social media simply because they don't want to be left out. You know, they don't want to be the only person in the class who doesn't have an Instagram account or whatever the case may be. But those reports come from the CDC paint a picture that I think is probably worthy of a chat with our youth as to how they view, how they use, and what's the impact on them with social media because everybody's at it. Certainly I would suggest the vast majority of teenagers have some social media accounts, whatever they may be. I think the most popular is probably Instagram and TikTok at this point, but anyway, those reports are out there to consider. And it's scam season. Every year when tax season comes around, there seems to be a real uptick in the number of relentless nuisances trying to milk you of your hard-earned money. So whether it be CRA and some of these CRA-related scams are much different and look very, very real. You'll get an email now that has mimicked government logos and all the rest of it. But unless it's a CRA email that directs you to your CRA My Account, which is secure, then just ignore it, delete it, don't deal with it. And then some of the ones that the RNC are also talking about that are flowing around. And it's worth having these conversations with our family members, especially who might be the most vulnerable. Not because I say so, but because I think the research shows that folks who are older may indeed be more vulnerable because they don't want to let the caller down. And one of the ones is called the old grandparent scam. So we've talked about this in the past. So someone might get some personal information from, say, for instance, your Facebook page, where you talk about the pride and the love you have for your grandchildren. And maybe they're able to glean a name, a specific name of a grandchild, and then they call you. And in the whispered, tortured voice, Nanny, I'm hurt. 
or I'm in trouble and I need some money. And that has worked apparently far too often. So some of these warnings can probably be quite helpful. If you weren't expecting the call or a piece of mail or an email, just reject it. We always have to be so careful not to share our personal information because it can be used to hurt us in a hurry. So scam season is alive and well. I get emails every single day. People tell me about the phone call they got, the email they got, the text they got, that they're pretty sure is a scam. And generally speaking, it is. All right, let's talk a little economy. So the Conference Board of Canada does an annual report, you know, forecasting the rate of economic growth, economic activity in the country. And this year they say they are poised for limited economic activity and sluggish growth. They don't say there's going to be much in the way of improvement in the economy this year, maybe one full quarter of negative economic growth. But as it pertains to the provinces, they look right across the country and break it down from province by province, territory by territory. In Newfoundland and Labrador, they say we'll have the fastest growing economy in 2023, mostly because of the resumption of oil production out of the Terra Nova site. So they say the GDP will increase by some 2.2% in 2023, tapering slightly into 24 and 25. So I guess energy really does go a long way to increasing GDP. So with Terra Nova getting back out there after its refit in Spain, final inspections in CBS, they say that the, the economy will grow in the province. GDP anyway, some 2.2%. All right, good news for the folks in St. Lawrence and surrounding area. So Grant Thornton has been administering the insolvent company that is the uh, St. Lawrence Floor Spire Mine. Now they've selected uh, a successful bidder. They have a letter of, a binding letter of intent in hand now working towards finalizing a formal agreement. So the extension has been offered by the courts until May 31st to allow time for this binding letter to be transitioned into a formal deal. Good news. Now, it might not see all 200 people hired back into the St. Florence Floor Spire Mine, but the problem gets a little bit bigger for those who are the creditors. So, the Canada Floor Spire owes $95 million to three secured uh, creditors, $23 million to unsecured creditors, and about $10 million for capital leases of machinery, equipment, and stuff. The town of St. Lawrence also hard done by with the mine closing, or yes, with the mine closing because there's a $460,000 grant in lieu of taxes from Canada Floor Spire that went unpaid last year. The provincial government is a secured creditor with an outstanding loan of $17 million. We also cost shared some $6.5 million into keeping the mine in a care maintenance mode, but there's going to be a lot of people left in a lurch. So they think that there's about $1.5 million owed to Buren Peninsula-based companies. Marystown-based General Auto and Industrial tops that list with receivables of $540,000, and they look very much like they were not going to be repaid for the money, or pardon me, for the contractual work they did with Canada Floor Spire. But they are quite confident now that it's going to be reopened, and that's good news for the region that could really use those injection of jobs. Floor spire, I, I don't really know much about floor spire, but it's pretty widely and commonly used directly or indirectly. They use it to manufacture aluminum, it's used in gasoline, insulating foams, refrigerant, steel, uranium fuel. So hopefully, fingers crossed for the folks in St. Lawrence, that the mine will indeed be reopened. How are we doing out there, Dave? Okay. So the tale of two projects. We have heard so many people in the Port of Port region really with a negative outlook on the potential for World Energy GH2 to come to town. And we can talk about the world of green hydrogen and whatever else, the fiscal framework, but it is remarkable that the folks in the Botwood area, in exploits, are 
seemingly quite not only optimistic and hopeful and positive about the project being brought forward by an, uh, an energy company in the area. And it's a big project. So using the Port of Botwood, some 300 wind turbines, very similar business model to what they're proposing out on the Port of Port Peninsula. And again, I'm pretty sure now that it's John Risley, who's the firebrand, that has really attracted a lot of the negative reaction in the Port of Port region because I can only go by what I see and what I hear and what I read in my email. Not one single negative coming from folks in that area. Now, I'm sure there's going to be people out there with concerns regarding environmental sensitivities and what have you. But, you know, the population of Botwood is about half of what it was when Abitibi went away. So you even hear from their mayor and other leaders in the area. They're really quite pleased. And fingers crossed, this gets the uh, final go-ahead and they can move towards raising the capital and getting the project underway. The population is about half, as I mentioned. And at some point, some of the communities like Botwood, with the population decline and the age of the population, become unmanageable and unattractive place for people to live. So there's lots of upside for the folks in that area. And I haven't heard one negative reaction from anyone, or out, anyone out there. So please do. If you're in the Botwood area and you want to be, uh, you want to talk about the potential upsides, and or for those of you who have concerns, bring them to bear here on the program this morning if you have a chance. Okay. Mentioned yesterday that uh, Eco Justice is representing a group who are concerned about oil production, fossil fuel usage, and they're taking on uh, Minister Stephen Gibo's green lighting debate in oil project or the release for the environmental assessment. So, you know, we hear lots of people say, you know, green or oil or whatever. There is no such thing as green oil. But when we talk about emissions on site, there is a difference between offshore Newfoundland and Labrador and other, other jurisdictions. Here we go. And this comes from Minister Gibo and industry. And, but the eco-justice crowd say it doesn't go far enough to encapsulate the full emissions with the downstream work. Okay. Here we go. Gas emission, greenhouse gas emissions from the production at Bay de Nord would be about 8 kilograms per barrel. That's one-fifth of the Canadian oil average and about one-tenth of the oil sands production. Minister Gibo said there was also 137 conditions on the approval, including that by 2050, production be net zero, where all emissions are captured and stored. The folks at EcoJustice are fair and right to point out that, you know, that only includes or encapsulates emissions at the production site. And, of course, the vast majority, somewhere between 85, maybe as much as 90% of the emissions come downstream when the uh, product is refined and used and burned. But we'll see if they have any luck inside the courts. But, you know, on one hand, you have eco-justice talking like this, and then you have Trades and L. We spoke with Darren King yesterday about the hope for jobs here. We still don't know where the status of negotiations between the province and Equinor, the proponents, stand, because their business model sanction, they say, break even at 35 bucks a barrel. So there's every reason to believe that the potential for 1 billion recoverable barrels of oil out in the Flemish Pass might see this project go ahead, but we'll take it on. And speaking of the downstreamer, price of gas down slightly, 1.8 cents. Furnace oil up about 5 cents. Diesel down about, uh, pardon me, up about 2.5 cents. But the big question out there is because it's hard to keep up with the PUB's move on the price of fuels. But in April... When the province halved the provincial gas tax, that's going away in April. Well, we haven't been told it's going to be extended, so we may indeed see that $0.07 cents come back. We're trying to find out whether or not there's any update to be had on that front, but that, that holiday and half the gas tax provincially is going by the wayside. And then, of course, here comes the federal carbon tax scheme or structure or plan 
to the province, and that's going to see carbon tax added to our home heating fuels, which even the province says they were trying to negotiate with the federal government to not have that included. But as of now, it absolutely will be, even though it comes with those climate incentive rebate checks. That's a massive concern in many corners. Okay, a couple of quickies before we get to you. So there was a bunch of money that was part of the uh, da, 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 Investing in Canada Infrastructure Program. Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador are wondering whether or not it's all going to be spent. So some $212.8 million, or 38% of the allotment afforded to Newfoundland and Labrador, remains unspent. The province says that by the end of March, and that's the deadline, by the end of March we will see all that money go out the door for a variety of projects, but... There's no good reason for any of that federal monies to not be spent where it's intended to be spent. Infrastructure deficits in municipalities is obviously quite real. So let's get an update from the province. Please do let us know exactly what's being entertained and to guarantee that the money will go out for the intended infrastructure projects in communities that so desperately need it. So that one is a big chunk of cash. All right. I guess, you know, we've got to talk healthcare again. The story, and it's not just the emergency room closure in Bonavista. There's many other communities that are in a very similar circumstance with the emergency room closed, diversions repeatedly, and never knowing whether or not your emergency room, where you live, is going to be open. So the story that comes from Bonavista is tragic and really quite sad. And for folks in the area, they say it's not unexpected. And you know it by now. A gentleman who had a severe asthma attack, and he went to the emergency room to try to get some help, and the doors were locked. So a couple of big questions. You know, not every single thing that we need in primary care has to be offered by an emergency room physician. There are other disciplines that can do and provide some primary care. So can it be real that there's not one single health care worker inside that hospital that could be providing some primary care to those who find themselves in emergency crisis situations? Really? So it's tragic. The family's blaming it directly on the diversion and the need to get an ambulance to go to Clarenville an hour and a half away. And again, it's not just that community. So it'd be nice to have a better understanding as to how we can see the doors locked. There might be reduced service, maybe no doctor on staff that particular day, one day or another. But there's a variety of things inside of primary care where we can indeed have a registered nurse, a nurse practitioner, a licensed practical nurse, and others who can provide some care, do some triage, figure out how to get you help close by where you live, as opposed to having to get an hour and a half ambulance ride. And that comes with complications up and down the line. And then the emergency room deaths, emergency department deaths numbers. I'm not really sure how to even absorb these, but it's pretty big. So the emergency department, the Department of Health says that 326 people died in the province's emergency departments in 2022. That's up from 262 in each of the previous years. Now, they also go on to say that some of these deaths may indeed people died en route to hospital. So does it as simple as you presented to a triage nurse at the emergency department and before you were seen or even after you were seen but still in the emergency department, they died? Is it as simple as that? Because I'm not really sure I understand how to evaluate or to speak about those numbers, but we'll get someone who can do exactly that. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. One story we did talk about earlier in the week was some $27 million going to be spent on training and upskilling those interested in joining the tech and innovative workforce. Florian Viome is the CEO at TechNL. He's going to kick off the program. Then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the CEO at TechNL. That's Florian Viome. Good morning, Florian. You're on the air. 
Hi, bonjour à tout le monde. Welcome back to the program, Florian. Uh, big news came out of your organization there a couple of days ago, the announcement of some $27 plus million dollars to support technology training and upskilling. Uh, quick question to start it off. Is this just for people who are already through high school or through post-secondary in the workforce, or is there going to be an opportunity to connect some hopeful or aspirational tech workers that are in school? Yeah, so it's um, it's a pretty it's a program that has a pretty large uh, reach. So of course, of course, um, it's open to high school graduates and postgraduate students. But it's also open to any professional uh, who are looking for a career change, and also for people working in the tech sector already. For folks who are on the outside looking in, like me, you know, we see tech as someone working at a coding company or building smart thermostats or the verifins of the world. And maybe if they don't have that type of background, they might be intimidated and think that they don't have a real chance to work in that sector. You know, talk about transferable skills, you know, for people who are good at problem solving or maybe working in the trades and how they can translate their, their skills, their skill set with some upskilling to join the tech sector. Yeah, so there are a number of stereotypes uh, on, you know, like the background you need to work uh, in the technology sector. And um, often we hear that a career in tech means, you know, you are at a computer and you have a technical background. But in fact, there are so many ways to work in the tech sector. There are sales role, marketing and communication, leadership, customer success, accounting, tons of uh, roles. And what we heard um, from many employers is people who have uh, different uh, experience give them an, an edge. Um, so, for example, you will have like uh, people in the art or uh, you will have uh, people in um, you know, communication that are good at sales in one domain. Um, sales is sales. Uh, you just le- learn some technical um, expertise and you can do some sales in, in, uh, in the tech sector. So a lot of transfer, transferable uh, skills. And uh, in general, what, I, uh, what we found very um, exciting is, is uh, people who are very creative and interested to, uh, to contribute to a very strong sector. Well, th- and th- I think that's fair in that, you know, you might be able to create the shiny object, but not be able to get it to market or to sell it or to expand or to uh, raise capital. So there's a lot of people that play an active role inside of these types of companies. So what exactly does the program look like? Is it a classroom setting? They do some work virtually or is there not a one size fits all? Yeah, so let me um, give you a, like an, an overview of the program. So first of all, I want to mention this program is groundbreaking for the, the tech sector. Um, it's by far the largest program in the history of the tech sector in Newfoundland and Labrador. We have 11 partners involved, uh, three post-secondary institutions, including Keying College and Memorial University. We have five training organizations. So we have ACENET, E3, Gate Coding, the Lead Method, and the Women and Resource uh, Development Corporation, and also three tech companies like Colab, Genoa Design, and, uh, and SEM. So it's really like a collaborative program. It's not like a, you know, like a, a one big program. So there's a lot of different ways to engage um, in, uh, in, 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 the, in the program. Um, you have uh, opportunities to do uh, coding and software development uh, programs. For example, King and uh, Get Coding are providing that uh, training. And I think what's very important for uh, the listener to understand is uh, many of those uh, programs can be done remotely and online from uh, anywhere. Um, there's a sales training, there's leadership training, equity, diversity, and inclusion, which is something very important to us. Um, we, uh, we have a strong focus on gender diversity, uh, ethnicity, race, diversity, um, having more uh, involvement of uh, indigenous and, and uh, visible minorities. So that's really something important to us as well.
I appreciate the time. So if anyone wants to get involved as an organization to find more information or an individual trying to get, you know, whether or not they're a fit for your sector, what do they have to do? They have to check our website, findyourfuturenl.ca, um, and uh, they can fill out the form and uh, we'll be in touch. I appreciate the time this morning, Florian. Good luck. Thank you, buddy. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Florian Viome, the CEO at TechNL. Uh, because I think that, you know, for me, I'm intimidated a little bit by technology. I'm the furthest thing from tech savvy. I can tell you that much. But the important information there, whether it be in equity-deserving groups or what have you, is that you might be working in one industry or another. Maybe you're simply displeased or not content with the job you have, or the industry or the sector you work in might not have as the stability long-term that you need. So, as he said, you know, those who are coders and those who can create the shiny object or to manufacture a smart thermostat or develop a collaborative engineering software, there's more to it than that, and there's opportunities up and down the line. And it's already a billion-dollar industry, albeit done very, very quietly, and room for growth is absolutely there. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the mayor out in Riverhead since Mary's Bay. That's Sheila Lee. Mayor Lee, you're on the air. <laughs> good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Um, I'm calling today with a, um, regarding a health care issue. Um, I took a family member to see a radiologist and a urologist uh, this past week, and of course, uh, the 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 problem was that this person had been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Uh, ended it, we had a, we had a very detailed discussion with the radiologist, explaining everything about the, the treatments and everything. But the, I had heard about it on the news, but I didn't really understand the, the total uh, impact of it until I learned more that day. Uh, apparently, there is. 10 radiology therapists after leaving, plus two others, which is not called radiology therapists, but there's another name to them. So there's a total of 12 people after leaving that department, which results in <clears throat> the machinery that they need, like the cat, the, the, having the CAT scan done first and, uh, and then the treatments, means that it only can function at 75% of the time rather than 100 so as a result of that, now when we're talking about radiology, we're not just talking about prostate cancer. We're talking about all kinds of cancers. As a result of that, what's happening now is that people are put in a priority basis in the sense of how serious and critical the treatment is, is needed. And as we go down the line, of course, which wasn't the case really before, there's going to become, uh, not probably, will become a long waiting line to be able to get your radiology treatments for, for something like prostate cancer. They gave us the option to go to, to go to Toronto. Now, that wasn't something this family member was comfortable with. But we were told that our, everything would be paid for us to go to, to go to Toronto for one full month to have those treatments. So that means meals, accommodations, you know, I would assume transportation to the hospital and everything. And I was thinking in my mind, like, at the end of a month, what would be the tab, I wonder, if our government would have to pay out for that? The pe- these people who left, apparently, are getting about, about $20,000 less a year than what the rest of those uh, therapists was getting across Canada. And uh, I, I understand that they're young people and they are, a lot of them are not attached, you know, they haven't got families and, or anything. And they're going to jump on a plane and they're going to go to where they can get, get a much better deal, which you can't blame them. But 
the question that I'm asking is, and that they don't seem to be really feeling that this is being uh, acknowledged by the government, by our Department of Health. Um, the question I'm asking is, now this is only just this instance I heard about, but if the amount of money that's being paid out to send these people away for whatever, but because it can't be done here because of shortage of workers, don't you think there should be a priority put on to see if this is really the problem, let's try to be comparable with the rest of Canada? Because I have a feeling that if it was all calculated at the end of the day, our government is actually paying more out than if they did this for those people and, and gave them an incentive to stay. The, 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 radiolo- the, the, the specialists themselves, beautiful people we talked to, uh, in, they, you know, basically I was told that their salary is also about 20% less than what they will get in their parts of Canada. And now this, 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 this specialist has to, can't work to full capacity. Uh, you know, he, he, so is he, he's getting more frustrated and there's a suspicion that there's going to be more leaving. So are we going to lose people like him? So uh, I really think that this is alarming. And I don't think, you know, I know, I know the government now got this extra money to, from, from the federal government. And it might sound like a lot of money per year, but it's really no fortune at all. But, it, you know, I think the priority has to be in this, in this business of, of, of course, our nurses being compensated properly and being treated properly. And our, our people like these people I'm talking about in the healthcare system. It's got to be put there to try to see if we can get this system back, if we can get it stabilised, if we can get it improved, so that we won't, won't have to be sending people outside. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of worried people now. Cancer is not a, it's not a very uh, uh, happy thing to hear, but it's very worrisome as well when you're on a waiting list and you don't know when you're going to get called. Uh, my family member, thank God, is not one of those people that's at the high risk. But there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee, no 100% guarantee that mm-hmm. while he's waiting, this, this cancer may not escape into another part of the body. So I just thought I'd raise this today, not just for my, my situation with my family member, but for the whole province. I think that there's got to be more outcry, got to be more. People got to be out there in front, you know, really making this a big issue because it is. Of course it is. You know, and it's not the only area where people are leaving the province for treatment or one procedure or another. I know we have a relationship with the cardiac team in Ottawa where we've seen people go to Ottawa for their procedures. I know that we've been sending people or offering them the opportunity to go to Toronto. And there's no doubt that by the time all the bills are paid for travel for care, it's absolutely going to be more than it would have cost to do it here. Now, there's... I don't know how we even broach some of these topics because if you look across the country, everyone's scrambling. So if we are going to try to have some national guidance and national leadership, and you know, a base rate of pay for all healthcare professionals is the same across the country. Now, certain little benefits or like they're talking about Bonavista, a service building lot or a municipal uh, upfront bonus paid, like I don't know. But we're going to see all these new healthcare dollars come into the provinces, and I think it's all going to be used in the bidding war for healthcare workers, which doesn't really help fix the system, which absolutely needs to be rejigged and restructured. 
standard. So I think that's the road we're going down. We're going to see governments with no choice but to satisfy the electorate because we all need access to health care when we need it. I think that's how the money is going to get spent. Whether or not that means we're going to do any better here and uh, decrease the wait times and see better positive health care outcomes and access to family doctors and neurologists or radiologists or whatever, I don't know, Sheila. But the, pro- the problems and the stories are piling up. Yes, and, and like I'm, I'm very familiar with the Health Accord. I set in a number of the, of the Zoom sessions and everything, and I think there's a lot of good stuff in the Health Accord. I think that those two people really worked hard, need a lot of research, and really tried to put in. But there are new ways, you know, if you look at it, there's new ways of doing things. Like one of the things is big now they're talking about is these collaborative clinics. I mean, for example, we have a situation here. We have a, we have a, a doctor comes to our community from Hollywood. Um, he's stationed in Hollywood. A doctor comes to our to St. Mary's for two days a week. A nurse practitioner comes for two days a week. And I had to say, like, we never had any very, we didn't have very good consistency of seeing, seeing medical people for a long, long, long time. But now that they've got this, this system figured out and they got to get, you know, got, they only can see one person. Now you just can't go, go shopping around for doctors. Uh, I can get an appointment here in St. Mary's now faster than someone will get it in St. John's. And uh, the level of care is fantastic. So I think, I think there's some changes that are good at, at a court. And I think that, that uh, you know, give it a chance. If they don't change things and the results don't get better, well, then they wasted their money and their time with this health court. Fair ball. I appreciate the time as usual, Mary Lee. Thank you. And thank you, my dear, for giving me the time to be able to speak. I do appreciate that a lot. Stay in touch, Sheila. You're one of the best, of course. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. That's Mary Sheila Lee out in Riverhead. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about moose licenses. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three, Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Uh, Patty, just uh, the government released the moose license allocation for the uh, for the province uh, a couple of days ago for 2023, and uh, I got to say I'm I'm disappointed again as usual. Uh, there was a reduction of 90 licenses, a whopping 90 licenses, Patty, out of almost 28,000 licenses uh, for the province. Um, the uh, of of concern of concern, Patty is the Avalon Peninsula. Uh, now, there are other areas and other people can call in. I just want to talk about the Avalon Peninsula this morning. Uh, this year, there's, an, there's a total license allocation for the whole Avalon Peninsula, 2,875 licenses. That's a huge number, Pat. That's a huge number. The, uh, the success rate for the Avalon Peninsula that I have done up my own numbers, I calculated according to what was there, uh, and this is for 2021. The stats are always for the success rate. They're always two years behind. The success rate for 2021 was, uh, was my number two, uh, 41.5% for the Avalon Peninsula, all of the Avalon Peninsula, 41%, Patty. So that's telling you what, that there's there's not as many moves around. When is the government going to start listening to us and, and make some kind of reduction and now, Patty, when I talk about a reduction, there are there are some MMAs, moose management areas in in on the island of Newfoundland that are doing very very well. Some are mediocre, but some are are down low. And the Avalon Peninsula here is one of those, and with a success rate of forty one percent, and then another 
2,875 licenses issued for this year, where is it going to stop? I don't know. I'm not so sure. <laughs> okay. Is the reduction a good thing or a bad thing? Because in one breath, we're talking about success rate, and you say there's fewer moose around. But then you were describing the reduction in licenses. What, what felt like or sounded like you thought it was a bad thing. So wh- which is it, sorry? Well, we'd like to see a reduction in the licenses uh, for, for until they figure out what, what's really going on there. I mean, if they're, they're putting out 2,875 uh, licenses this year and a success rate two years ago of 41% for the whole Avalanche, then... There's, the 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 population, moose population on the Avalanche Peninsula, what I'm talking about specifically here this morning, is in trouble. Yeah, because I had a quick scroll through the the numbers of licenses and success rate, so it does really seem that it's a bit of a standout number. There's another couple of places like Marachine, I saw out of the corner of my eye, 44%, but then other areas, La Poile, well over 86%. So I guess there's hot spots for moose and the population of moose in certain areas. So when we have the reduction, do we have a breakdown of where the licenses have been reduced, specifically, or is it simply uh, no, the pool? I'm not sure about that, Patty. But uh, the, uh, the with the break with the breakdown you say there is a uh, uh, a plus and minus uh, number of licenses that's added or subtracted from last year's quota, and so some areas have gotten increases, others got decreases. Okay, so I'm, I, just because I only opened this. Five seconds before you called? Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, okay, so yes, now I see that line item there. For instance, in St. Anthony, uh, the quota change for 2022, plus 50. Success rate was 62, so it goes all the way down the line. Many areas are unchanged. 50 seems to be a common thread. 50 and 30, they're plus or minus. So, fair enough. I don't see Avalon MRZ has zero change in licenses and success rate of 28.84. Okay. Now, that's 2021 stats, Patty, for the, for the success rate. Yep. So that's a very, very low, uh, very low success rate. A hundred percent. So have but, you know, and and as well, that's that's very apparent to even non-hunters for the MRG one hundred, the highway license for here on the Avalanche. Because uh, again, I asked the same question I've asked before: when you're driving on the highway, how often do you see a moose these days on the Avalanche Peninsula? And the answer is usually not very often. Yeah, it used to be a real hot spot around the Salmon Air line for the longest while when I used to go in and out of there quite frequently. So, uh, fair enough. If I remember correctly, Barry, have we had a change in uh, approach from the Department of Wildlife for how we count most? Uh, the only ch- there, there is a change, Patty, and it's a positive change, and it was brought about, I guess, by uh, myself, myself, our group, and New France Sportsman magazine, in which we were lobbying government to increase the number of area licenses, area surveys, moose counts during winter time for moose. Uh, they were at three to five uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, when we started out, then we got an increase to seven per year. And then in 2019, we had a uh, another increase to 10 area surveys per year. Uh, a, a, a worry, a fear, a concern some hunters have expressed is that during these uh, era surveys, are they cherry-picking the good spots to give a, to give a perhaps false picture? Uh, with, with the aerial surveys, Pat, I'm glad you brought that up. We have, uh, we have uh, if, if this aerial survey goes ahead 
and do some kind of weather happens, the chopper is grounded. That's it for that survey for that day. Maybe that day that sur- survey may not get uh, that area may not get surveyed because of the uh, the availability of the chopper. We have suggested to for the government to poss- look into the possible use of drones for the uh, for the uh, moose surveys, which are used other places and you know they're proven to be uh, quiet, effective, more accurate, doesn't bother the animals, less expensive. Yeah, that sounds like it make all, makes all the sense in the world. Before we run out of time, Barry, did you also want to say something about Lewisport? Yes, Patty. Uh, we uh, we have. I'm part of a working group for the uh, Lewisport against the Lewisport proposals for world synergy power, world power synergy, synergy world power. Sorry, but isn't that and, dead in the uh, water? Pardon? That's dead in the water, though, isn't it? Yes, it is. It uh, didn't make it past the environmental assessment. We just had a meeting with uh, Minister Byrne Davis uh, uh, Monday past, a very positive meeting, Patty. Yes, the project is dead in the water. We, our our working group against the importation of uh, garbage, we want to see, take a step further to possibly put an amendment in legislation that will prevent any company or individual from ever proposing, making a proposal to the province about the importation of garbage ever again. We were met very receptive and a very positive meeting. And uh, i got to say, it's very, uh, it's very welcome and warming to, find, you know, to have a meeting that goes with a positive note. And uh, the, yes, the project is dead in water. The project will not, will not be proceeding. Thankfully enough, because we could have been, uh, if that had gone ahead, we could have been known as the garbage capital of the world. Yeah, and, you know, there might be a need to update some legislation here, because I think the eventual decision, they quoted something that I think is as old as the Wells era, with the ban of the importation of other people's trash, and that would, I guess, include any recyclables. And the World Energy, they've never, or Synergy, they've never got a project off the ground anywhere, as far as I can tell. That's correct, Patty. That's yeah. to my to my uh, uh, knowledge as well. Right. So uh, you know, very positive to have a, have a meeting with a minister and uh, Patty. Uh, they're looking into the um, possibility of uh, further action to prevent this. And we're I, I'm going to say as well, and you probably know that uh, myself and and some of my co- my and my colleagues in this uh, in this uh, venture are not uh, naive. We are uh, experienced lobbyists. And for us all to come away and think that it was a good meeting and and we can can feel at ease, is a good thing. I appreciate the time this morning, Barry. Thanks for this. Thanks, Patty. It's always been a pleasure. My pleasure, sir. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's get to the break. When we go back, Canada Post in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back. All right, let's go. Line one. Chess, you're on the air. How are you today? Okay, how you doing? Not bad. I got a question about uh, for for you, for you. Uh, sure. Canada Post. Mm-hmm. Now I phoned them two weeks and a half ago, but I had problems with my mailbox getting into it. Right? I know it's the cold weather and nothing to do with it because that mailbox lock was was fooled up for some reason. Was always been in my key, so I phoned them up with a request for a new lock and keys. Now he comes back. Yeah, we got it done. So I get the text message on my phone saying the lock has been changed and there's no keys. <laughs> Last time I was talking to him, up, up away, kind of post in the main office, up away, they told me to send the keys to Torbay. 
Okay. To Tarbe, and then they turned around when I phoned, told him, explained, I don't live in Tarbe, and I told him where I was too, Major's pet, before, and then they turned around, oh, them keys are gone flat rock. Then they turned around yesterday, told me that they were going to Shepherd's Joke Mart, and Shepherd's got nothing to do with Major's pet. They only got part of, from Shepherd's Joke Mart, from Tarbe Road, down to the other end, Elizabeth Avenue. They don't have nothing to do with Major's pet. And then he turned around and said they sent them to Latins on Tarvey Road, and Latins don't have them. So They're giving me a runaround for two lousy keys. So do we actually know where the keys are, period? Are they, they don't know. They don't know. Because they're giving me all different addresses where to go and pick them up. And Friday, when I phoned about the keys, I should have met them last Friday, you got to go to 1500 and 55 Tarbay. Now, that's the address they gave me over the phone. And I explained it to her. I'm no, I'm, no, I'm no short distance from them. I'm a long ways distance from that. Right? And he texted me back and saying they can't find the keys. And I can't blame it on the post office, guys, that delivers the mail. It's not them. My heart goes out to them. It's not them. It's the main post office on the mainland. Don't know where Major's pet is to from Tar Bay or Tar Bay Road. They don't know that right addresses. I don't think they know where, where, where half of the streets are in, in Newfoundland. Well, I, I don't know what they do or do not know, but it's pretty easy business when we talk about what someone's postal code is, and they know where the postal yeah. codes are. So geographically, yeah. postal codes are a very helpful tool. So yeah. it's it's a bit silly that you've been told they've been in two different drugstores and two yeah. or three different post offices. So yeah. Yeah. anyway, I'm not sure what to say. I don't know, Penny, my son. I'm not going to expect that a check in the mailbox is like over a week there now. And I can't get me food money because it's still locked up in the mailbox. Yeah, bizarre. Now, yeah, but Patty, I got another question for you. All those rebates coming out, how come it's not even coming out for the seniors? Like, for instance, my mother right around today, she got to buy her wood for heat. She don't have liquid heat. She got to buy her wood. Cost us fourteen hundred and fifty dollars for tree for the for a truckload of wood now. Now, how come there's no rebates coming out for them poor people? Well, there's a couple of areas where there hasn't been any rebate or support coming for different forms of uh, heating people's homes. And I've heard the reference to wood many, many times uh, yeah. from different seniors uh, in different parts of the province. I mean, I don't know why, but I'm, nor am I sure just how many people would be impacted with the lack of a subsidy if you do indeed heat your home or the primary source is wood, which I don't think many people have the primary source as wood. But uh, you're right, that has been overlooked with the the monies that have gone out the door. That's true. Yeah, yeah, because the poor person, like me mother, sure, she's only, only on a fixed income, always pension, so she don't even get $1,400 a month. Okay. Right, and she got turned around by that, even that, she got a freeze dinner started. Right? It's shocking, though. You know what I mean? Yeah, people are struggling, and uh, here comes some carbon tax on people who use yeah. home heating fuels as well, which is going to yeah. be a big issue when it comes to pass. I appreciate yeah. the time this morning. Thanks for this, Chess. Yeah. Good luck okay. with the keys. Yeah. yeah. All right, buddy. Bye-bye. I mean, you think Canada Post could get that much sorted out.
fairly easily. Uh, let's get an update. Remember when Bill 24 was the, the legislation that passed in the House of Assembly to end a private ambulance strike? Of course, that was people represented by the Teamsters Local 855 who were working for fewers. They're back to work, but that's not the end of the story. With an update on line number four is the business manager at that particular local. That's Hubert Daw. Hubert, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Just to remind people, so the bill saw the people you represent go back to work, but you still have further negotiations to go with Bob Fewer. Where do we stand? All right, so we have been we have been working diligently on trying to get an ambulance service agreement in place. That's the, the next step that we have to uh, we have to get to get past before we can uh, you know go back on strike again. Um, you know, we've been we've been meeting with the employer. Uh, we got off to a rocky start, but fortunately, it's uh, once we got down to business, everything has been rung along pretty smooth. Uh, we're just down to a couple of outstanding issues now, which you know the only reason we're really held up on them is that we really need a legal opinion before we can move forward. You know, this being new legislation, of course, everybody's very very cautious threading through this. We want to make sure that we have uh, everything in order and we do meet all requirements as us laid out in the uh, in the act. What did you? What do you need to see satisfied in this agreement? These ongoing negotiations with fewers. So, can you give us an idea, like what has been settled and what's outstanding? Um, we, have, we we have two sets of negotiations on the go right now. So, I think I need to clarify first which which one you're asking about. So I'm just I'm asking about. Uh, I know you've got to have this uh, return to service agreement. I think that's what it's called formally. And so if there's two different ones, tell me what what they are, because I was only really aware yeah. of the one piece of work that's being negotiated. Okay. Yeah. So we, well, we we had, we were in contract negotiations, and that was broke down. That's what got us to the strike. So that was, that was one set of negotiations that you know is still ongoing in the back burner. But right. you know, primary focus now is on this essential uh, ambulance service agreement, which is the one that forced us back to work. Uh, right now, we're sort of we're, we're sort of held up on, on on workers' rights. I think is probably the best way to class it. We we, we have a we sort of have a disagreement because the the order has ordered us back to work. But if you look at the Labor Standards Act, a collective agreement is only valid up to the point that we go on strike. Once we go on strike, that voids the collective agreement. But now in this situation, we have workers who are going to be designated as essential. They ha- are not on strike. So if they're not on strike, uh, it, it's our, our contention that the, the, the collective agreement should protect them and, and their workplace. And the employer is, is standing to the labor standards that once you go on strike, there's no longer a collective agreement in place. So okay. we have to reach an agreement on, on that. that. That's probably the biggest hurdle that we have left right now when it comes to, to the negotiations in, in all honesty. What does that mean for service on the ground? Uh, every nobody should notice any difference in the, in the service that they have they're receiving now to to the service that they, we were providing before we went on strike. You know, it, it's for our members right now. They're doing they're doing 100% of the work that they did prior to the uh, to the strike, and we're just waiting to get the like so get, this, get this piece of agreement in place so that we can move on and try to get that collective agreement negotiated. Because at the end of the day, that's what we want. We don't want to be on a picket line. We want to be doing our job, but we want to make sure that, uh, you know, the, the rules for doing our job are, are clearly defined and in place. So if I remember correctly, when this bill went through, does this not mean if you can't arrive at a, a negotiated uh, contract with the employer, does that mean you go directly to binding arbitration or is there the possibility to strike again? Uh, no, we cannot strike until this, this agreement is in place. So if we can't reach an agreement on this place, uh, excuse me, on this on this uh, document, 
then neither the employer or the union has to apply to the labor board to have the labor board impose an essential service agreement on us. Once that essential service agreement is imposed, it becomes in effect, then we can go on strike, and then we can look at going going to binding arbitration to settle all the issues that we have outstanding. Which I think is something that you and your union supported because you thought that if you could make your case in front of an arbitrator, they'd have no choice but to uh, uh, rule in your favor. Just a very quick one, just from my further understanding of the essential services agreement. So inside of that, you try to figure out exactly what aspects of the service are essential and then how many people I think are needed to meet that standard. Is there an understanding of how many people are needed to meet that standard inside what we understand to be the uh, the issues inside the essential services agreement? Yeah, we the both the employer and the union have agreed on the number of people that are that are going to be required to provide it and the number of ambulances that we're going to need to meet the requirements under the uh, under the act. That's that's not coming block for us right now. Okay, so if I remember correctly, it was maybe thirty seven ambulances and some one hundred operators. Uh, yeah, so that, those, those, those numbers are about correct. Yeah. Uh, Hubert, anything else you want to say in the form of an update or any other comments before we say goodbye? No, I think I think we're, we're like I so said. I feel that we're in pretty good shape now with our negotiations. It's uh, you know it's you know if I might quote his lawyer, it's not all rainbows and butterflies. But I mean, it's uh, you know we we are closer to an agreement, and I, I think we have a good understanding of where where we want to be at the end of the day. So I'm I'm very pleased with the progress we've made so far. Appreciate the update this morning on the time. Thanks, Hubert. See you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Hubert Todd, the business manager, Teamsters Local 855. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of show to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go. Top of the board, line number one. Dennis, you're on the air. Good morning, Penny. How are you doing? Best kind. You? That's good. Well, I heard you yesterday. I heard Des Sullivan, and uh, i got to say, boy, hit the nail right on the head, and I agree with everything that he said. And I also heard Eugene Manning calling into you, and I figured, well, uh, uh, this guy is going to make a, a good leader of the PC party and hopefully uh, the next premier of the province. But uh, I wanted to call in... On two or three items, Patty. One was Gordon Pinsent and his passing. And I just wanted to tell you a little story of an event that occurred about 20 years ago, I guess now. And it's indicative of the kind of quick wit that uh, Gordon Pinsent had. And it happened down at the old Press and Bean, you know, down the Murray premises. Yep. And my wife and I were down one Sunday afternoon. Uh, to have lunch, and uh, we were eating lunch, and uh, there, there were two gentlemen across the way at a table, and I was struck by the, the fact that one of the two resembled Gordon Pinsent. So I, I said to my wife two or three times, I said, you know, boy, Gordon Pinsent certainly has a twin in that man over there. And, you know, we, we talked about it for a few minutes, and anyhow, we finished, and we got up to leave, and uh, I said, I got I to gotta tell him. And I went over to the table and I said, excuse me, but I said, uh, sir, I said, you look just like Gordon Pinsent. I said, it's really uncanny. And he looked up at me with a twinkle in his eye and he said, that's because I am. And chuckled. And uh, it was kind of the spur of the moment like that, Nice, casual, down-to-earth wit. 
and uh, I thought, given the fact that he's now passed away, this, this is indicative of the, the kind of man that he was, as you well know. Yeah, you know, a very similar story shared by a fellow named Mike uh, early this week. Same thing. He said, boy, you look a lot like Gordon Pinson. And he said, that's because I am. And then went on. It was really a very sweet story. So yeah. Mike was in Toronto with his wife who was battling cancer. And she was in the hospital. And after that brief interaction, I believe it was in a coffee shop, that uh, lo and behold, Gordon Pinson went to visit his wife in the hospital. Gosh, so, there you go. Some story. A, I tell you, I'm young enough and old enough to remember Quentin Durgan's MP. And uh, Gordon Vincent, as you know, was Quentin Durgan's. Yep. And it was way back in the late 50s, and it was a very, very, very popular CBC uh, TV program. So I just wanted to say that. The other thing, Patty, I want to talk about was uh, MCP. You had a chap on a few days ago, and he talked about a certain doctor here in the city. And uh, how he was, this doctor in particular, was being harried and bullied by by MCP. And uh, if you recall that. I do. Yeah, and uh, I know that doctor. In fact, to be honest, he's my doctor. And I tell you, he's one hell of a doctor and one hell of an individual. That doctor, throughout COVID, never missed a day in his office. Day after day after day, and uh, there every day for his patients. And now, see, he makes house calls, which is really unusual for a doctor. And uh, his house calls are usually the very elderly and the very vulnerable. And, you know, there, there are people who are lonely, people who are very sick, uh, People who have no car or they have no ability to drive a car or are a little bit uh, impaired in their uh, mobility. So he does those house calls for those individuals. And um, MCP, I guess whoever the accountants are with MCP, refuse to pay him the extra few dollars that you get for making a house call here in Newfoundland, Labrador. And it's, and, and it's not a lot of money. It's 15 or $20 added on to your regular fee. But it's not that that really bugs him. It's the fact that he, he's been audited and audited and audited and audited to death by, by MCP. And to, to no avail, I mean, all these audits are just time-consuming because he has to respond to them and all that sort of thing. And uh, so basically, hes I think he's at a point where he knows that MCP doesn't want him making house calls. They pretty well told him that. And to, you know, and as I say, these people are very, very ill, the elderly that he does see. So... Uh, and I've talked about it with him several times, and I'll tell you my fear. My fear is, and he's, he's kind of said it a few times, that he's kind of thinking he he might just, he and his family, get up and leave and go go to Nova Scotia. And I think that would be a, wow, what a loss. And I, I think of uh, Minister Osborne and the crowd who are globetrotting, uh, trying to recruit new doctors, and... 
not looking after the doctors that we have. And I'd really like to know the retention levels. And I heard you talk about it a few times, whether or not the number of doctors actually quitting the practice in Newfoundland Labrador is higher than the number of doctors being recruited. Well, just a couple of comments on that front. So last year we had a net loss of seven. So there was 115 new licenses that were awarded or granted, uh, but 122 doctors left. Now, we don't know a variety of details inside those numbers. For instance, in the 122, how many were retired? How many left for another province? How many are, were practicing with a full patient roster? Same thing with the 115 licenses. We were told in vague terms that many of them were simply working locums or walking clinics, not having a full-time clinic with a full patient roster, because there's a lot of disconnects inside these numbers. So even if we know and we're told that there's more doctors than ever before in this province, but yet more and more people are without a doctor. So what is it? Are they doing pure research or they have a part-time clinic going or what is it? Because something just doesn't quite add up here. So I don't know how to break the numbers down because we don't have much in the way of detail, but a net loss of seven last year, we went from 125,000 people without a doctor to 136,000 very, very quickly, which doesn't really feel like we're making much in the way of strides, even with all of the recruitment efforts. But the retention one, I think, gets kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit. It's fine to talk about bonuses to come home and the Come Home Year Initiative, bonuses to move from casual to permanent as a registered nurse, all those things. But the retention approach, which is, I would suggest, much more about the uh, your contentment with where you live and work and the so-called work-life balance, because we don't really hear as much about that as we do about recruiting. And I think retention is probably the biggest thing. And this bit about the doctor that you're talking about, yep. why would MCP care? Like, I, what is the problem here? If there's a doctor <laughs> willing to go old school and visit yeah. folks who are frail and elderly and need care in their home versus, yep. you know, time to clinic, why would MCP or anybody else care? Yeah, and especially over... A few miserable dollars. I think if, if you make a night a home call at night, and there's an extra maybe fifteen or seventeen dollars uh, tacked on to your regular fee, doctor's fee. That's it. That's it. So why would they care? I mean, and, and he gets the distinct impression from from the auditors with MCP that uh, they're not happy. They really don't feel that he should be doing this after hours that he should be making night uh, home visits you know to people who are depending on him to provide medical services and in fact what he's doing is is keeping these elderly people out of hospital and saving the system a lot sure. of money by doing so no question before i go to the break is there anything else you wanted to talk about this morning yeah i gotta i'll quickly. be really quick now and uh uh gerald squires Mm -hmm. And a few days ago, his artwork that he he did for uh, Mary Queen of the World Church on Topsail Road, the uh, the Last Supper, Station of the Cross, uh, the Crucifix, and the uh, uh, Resurrection, these were all auctioned off. Yep. Uh, not part of any settlement, so they're worth, I say, I'd say, between the whole lot of the paintings are worth uh, close on to between four dollars and $500,000. And I'm calling on Bishop Peter Hunt to tell us where that money is going. Where, where is this going, number one? Number two, and even bigger than the money, is the fact that uh, 
these, these works by Jero Squires are monumental. They are set in a, in a, a Newfoundland Labrador setting. They are reflective of the landscape of Newfoundland and Labrador. For example, The Last Supper is set in a, a, a fishing shed over on the south side. So these are these are religious in a sense, yes, and they were there at Mary, Mary Queen the World Church, but they're reflective of of. Uh, yeah, I've seen them. And the landscape of Newfoundland and Labrador. They could end up leaving the province. They should end up in a place like the Rooms. In either case, uh, follow the money, Bishop Hunt. Where is the money going and what is it being spent on? Well, there, I think there's a question in front of that, though, Dennis, all the same. Is who auctioned them off? And I don't mean Wayne Bartlett. I mean, who actually put the pieces in Bartlett's hands to auction them off on his online site? Because... There was a lots of confusion about when a church is sold and whether or not religious artifacts went with it. So, you know, whether it be uh, the Stations of the Cross that were put in the church, by the church, those types of things, or whether it be statues or what have you. So the confusion for me is, just because Gerald Squires painted a religious piece, does that make it a religious artifact? I'm not so sure it does. So I don't know if the people who bought Mary Queen of the World uh, owned that art and had it auctioned off consequently, or the Episcopal Corporation had owned that art and auctioned it off. So it'd be nice to know exactly who owned it before we can even ask where the money's going, because if it's the people who bought the church, then, of course, that money goes in their pocket. No, my understanding is that it is the Episcopal Corporation. No one's been able to confirm that for me. Well, they, you know, the Episcopal Corporation under Bishop Hunt, they don't confirm anything. They don't talk to anybody. They are good at selling things off. They're good at uh, destroying Catholic communities in the Archdiocese, which is what they did in the case of Corpus Christi. So don't expect any information from Bishop Hunt or the Episcopal Corporation, because they ain't talking. Yeah, and that's probably why I can't get anyone to confirm, because... I don't blame Wayne Barlett for not giving out those types of details, but I would imagine inside his contract with whoever auctioned it off, privacy is part of it. And we don't know who the buyers are either. We have no idea. They could be hanging up in Tokyo or in San Francisco or here in St. John's. We have no idea. And these were huge pieces. I don't know if the value of the entire block was as much as four or five hundred thousand the guess is that they would go individually between 50 and eighty thousand dollars which is still pretty dear Uh, appreciate the time doc thanks for this and Patty I'll just finish by saying that if they leave this province those paintings or if they end up hanging in a private living room somewhere it it will be another monumental tragedy in Newfoundland and Labrador because they are of the quality such that they should be for the public, and they should be up at the rooms. Yeah, I don't know what the appetite for the general public would be for the provincial government to be buying that type of art at this day and time and the realities that people are facing. You know, I was in the grocery store a couple of days ago, and the poor old lady in front of me, she was short about $2 with her very meager amount of groceries she had. You can imagine if she's sitting at home and reading a headline, province buys $400,000 worth of Jerry Squire's work. So no, I, I think, um, I'm of the opinion that the Episcopal Corporation... Viewing okay. the Catholic history over hundreds of years in Newfoundland and Labrador, the Episcopal should have given back by giving the, that artwork to the government of Newfoundland and Labrador to be put into rooms. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Paddy. Take Doc. care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're looking forward to speak with you. Don't go away.
Uh, welcome back to the program. And, you know, sometimes curious emails pop in during the breaks. And one such just happened is that uh, apparently we're deathly afraid to talk about the issues surrounding uh, alleged Chinese interference or foreign bad actor interference into the 2021 election. But, of course, we've talked about it almost every single day this week. You know, there's a, there's a lot to that story. And we absolutely do have to know exactly what went on and whether or not the prime minister was briefed prior to allowing the nomination for this one particular candidate to go forward. The leaks say things like 11 candidates were supported through the Toronto consulate of representing Beijing. So, yes, that's important to know. The other side of the story that I think is equally important is who or why anybody at CSIS is doing these types of leaks, which is absolutely against the law and is really quite dangerous. And people are running with it, in, even in reference to the fact that the election was stolen. Even if you ask Mr. Poliev, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and he has been asked whether or not he thinks that the election was legitimate, he says yes. So there is a recent report, which I think people are taking with a grain of salt, because the chair of that committee was a former uh, executive director at the Trudeau Foundation, which is not the Justin Trudeau Foundation, but they say that there was nothing that reached the level that meant that the election wasn't free and fair. So everyone's running wild with it, and we have to discuss it. The problem is there's an ongoing committee hearing uh, taking place now. The current security uh, the current security advisor to the prime minister was not in place at that time, so pretty much unable to answer questions about who knew what when and who was in the room for any conversation. But this is only ever going to get the type of shine of light on it that it requires is if it is taken out of the hands of politicians because the political theater is just leading to more and more people already thinking that the election is, is illegitimate. If we had a public inquiry, and the prime minister really needs to do the right thing here, we need to know what went on because faith in democratic institutions, faith in the integrity and the free and the fair essence of Canadian elections is important, extremely important. So if even Mr. Poliev thinks that, and he hasn't latched on to it in full, saying, well, the election was rigged and stolen because of some members of his party are absolutely running with that. So the only way to get down to the brass tacks is to take it out of the hands of the Michael Coopers of the world and politicians at committee hearings because we're never, ever going to get a clean and clear understanding of what went on. And we probably do need to do exactly that because even some of the most recent polling about whether or not the election was stolen is starting to creep up in numbers where people are running wild with this very uncritical eye and uncritical commentary coming from a lot of corners about what went on. But that's only being fueled by the fact that we're not going to, at this point, no commitment from the federal government to have the required inquiry, which I think makes sense. And if you don't think so, if you think there's more angles of the story that we should consider, and I do think the leak itself is a major league issue, major, and not much commentary that's anything but partisan at this point. Uh, let's go to line number two. Leonard, you're on the air. Good, good morning, uh, Penny. Morning to you. You hear me? I can hear you, sir. Go right ahead. Hey, sir, listen. I just want to explain something to you. Give me five or ten minutes, uh about the reason why the ratio of the people that the doctors handled years ago and they're not handling now, uh, and you love the, and you listen to me, you would have a lot to talk about in the future. When I, I, I went to a doctor in Harbour Grace when I was about 18 or 19 year old, his name was Dr. Gerald Power. I used to go down in the morning around 6 o'clock and get in first before I go fishing or go to my job. Then he turned around and a lot of people that caught out of what I was doing, they came there for 6, 5 o'clock. 
they put me to the point four o'clock and four thirty, and then three o'clock. I had to wait from three o'clock till four thirty when he came. Just, just, just some doctor, buddy. I'm telling you. And he turned around and uh, done from four thirty in the morning all day long with a lunch. I used to bring in his lunch from my garden, a carrot or a little bit of pie to wait maize or something she had ready for him because he was a, a deadly man. He used to do it after his work in the evening, 6 o'clock and 8. If he had patients late, he'd do them till 8 o'clock in the night. And he done this until he uh, had to do house care. House calls, yeah. People sick home their beds till... Uh, Two, three and four o'clock in the morning. He told me that in the morning. Next morning he come down, or next week he told me how we used to do this. And he done that all his life for till he only retired a three year ago. And uh, he was doing as high as uh, forty five patients a day for six days a week, and another five and six and seven every night. And his name was Doctor Gerald Power. We got none of that now. He done as much work then. He never, he's in, he never surgery nowhere. He was a general practitioner, understand me, of any. Okay. He, he, he lined everyone up. What he thought was wrong with their arms, their legs, their body, their back. He shoved his finger up, you know, where for me and checked my prostate out and all that. I was perfectly not proud for that. Okay, and but so the point is? My tail, he cut a boil off my tail long behind me, and uh, got, that was perfect. So what's the, what's the point we're trying to make here, Leonard? I'm trying to make the point that the doctors now are only doing a quarter of the work as he done. Yet the old people that retired, the old doctor that retired, he was a Newfoundlander from uh, St. Uh, Lawrence, and he spent a lot of time out on starting off his trade, and they lived... Uh, with, uh, with his brother that out in St. Pierre Miquelon. And the point I'm trying to make is uh, we got no doctors now done the quarter of the work that he done. He never done the surgery, but he set up everything in the hospital for decorations, uh, uh, for, uh, for, for the, uh, what's the name, for x-rays and uh, testing from the doctors in the Carmere Hospital. And he had that lined up so that when they came into St. John to go to the surgery, everything was all ready, do this, do that. We got none of that going on now, Patty. Well, I mean, I think that goes to the point uh, that I've made several times, is that it's fine and dandy to tell me there's more doctors than ever before, but there seems to be longer wait lists for many procedures. There seems to be an awful lot of people without a family doctor. So how many doctors are actually seeing a full roster of patients? It's a, I mean, fundamental question, but we can't seem to get a fundamental answer. I know, but if we had the doctors. We had the doctors like Dana wasn't lazy or don't want to make money now and this and that like him. But the old, the time you were talking about, the old-fashioned thing was going on to go. The doctor would satisfy my doctor. I know, I know my doctors uh, who made his income tax for years and years. I figured he was making a million dollars a year. He paid in sixty-eight thousand one year, sixty-five another year. That's not a million-dollar doctor, is it? No. Probably not. He worked, he worked a lot for Nani, but he, he set up, I'm one of the same patties, he set up everyone he could in Harbor Grace. You, they used to come down, not Harbor Grace. Now you, now if you're not in Harbor Grace, doctor, three doctors. I, I finally got a doctor after a year and a half the other day in Bay Roberts. I, I haven't entered, entered my uh, entry yet. 
he uh, took him from Bay Roberts, seven sheriff's town down the shore. He took him everywhere when he could take him. Whoever came got in with him, and he wouldn't give you no pills, no dope, no 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 ecstasy, and no uh, heavy pills for the young fellas to get none to go now from. I don't know, the doctors or or or, 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 or the nurses or what, but uh, he set up a lot of people. I say when he uh, he handled a hundred hundred patients a day. For, now, he was on the go, Patty, uh, uh, seven days a week. He finished off Saturday night, and then he goes Sunday all day for a home business for sick people at home in their houses. Yeah, house calls used to be pretty common, not so much anymore. I, I don't know if there's a specific reason as to why those things have changed. Uh, anyway, so those types of doctors would be probably very handy if some of that uh, patient load was more in practice today. Uh, anything else you want to say, Leonard, before I go? Well, one, uh, yeah, you still never struck my point. I'm telling you the reason why we got 177,000 people, <coughs> right, with way what? more doctors than we had years ago doing, the, doing, and they still can't handle the people. That's the reason why they haven't got the doctors now. The doctors now want a million, a million and a half dollars a year, and they want no. 40 hours a week, this and that. You'd see, see something like that? No. There's no doctors making a million and a half. These old doctors are gone. They're gone. They won't come back now. We're not going to get on our feet again unless we got, uh, I say, a couple of three billion dollars in Newfoundland from the government to get to get her started. That's when they get her started. Uh, all right, Patty boy. That's all I can tell you what, I, what, I, what, I, what, I, what my opinion is. I appreciate your time. Thanks for the call. Thank you very much, Patty. All the have, best. Hey, have you have a good day, Patty? You too. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. Uh, and just some, you know, inside the contract world of healthcare, it's kind of interesting things. There was an RFP out there for a provision of pain management, and that went away. We're trying to figure out how and why that was stopped. And of course, now with the RFP going out there for virtual care, and yes. Uh, before you have to tell me, I know virtual care is not perfect for everybody in every ailment. Totally understand. But then we talk about the costs. And this has been out there a few times, but just we'll put it back out in the front burner again. So in the world of virtual care, so whether it be on a computer screen and or on a telephone line. So the two notables that have been compared is, you know, one particular virtual care offering. And there's not only one in the province, and that's Medicuro, right? It's an online clinic. And then it was compared to for cost and access to phone med, which is, of course, 811. So at Medicuro, $42 per visit. $82 per visit to phone med, to 811. The total visits as of January 2023 was 7300 at Medicuro, cost taxpayers just over $305,000. The same 7300 visits at phone med cost taxpayers almost $600,000. Medicuro, locally owned and operated. PhoneMed, owned by an Ontario-based company. Medicuro has a cap on the number of people they can see, and I can never understand why that cap is in place. So, fair. If virtual care is for you, terrific. If it's not, okay. So, they're capped in the virtual offerings at 40 per day. PhoneMed, no cap. No cap at all. And add into it. So, I can call 811 and then have to be told that I have to see a doctor. So, at that point, we pay PhoneMed $82, and then the doctor we eventually see if we can get to see a doctor, we go ahead and see another billing of 38 or $42 again. 
So it becomes some very expensive options. But we've got to get down to the brass tacks of these cap businesses. Whether some of the caps that have been subsided or addressed regarding cardiac procedures, especially on the West Coast, and why, just why, two things. Why do we even need an RFP for virtual care if a doctor, wherever in this province, would like to add that to her, he, she or he's offering? Why can't they do that? And why, but why, do we have a cap on the number of patients they can see, which stands at 40? Let's take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Uh, welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Gary, you're on the air. Uh, yes, I'm wondering how many uh, MHA's districts are in Newfoundland. 40. Labrador. 40. 40? Yep. Uh, do they ever get together and have a meeting all together? Pardon me? Do the MHAs ever get together? All together, all 40 of them together and have meetings. Yes, they do, in the House of Assembly. Yep. Yeah, okay. Uh, like it seems like everyone is competing for doctors. That's true. And Bonavis, uh, like they're going to give away land and this and that, right? Right. Yeah, so I don't think that's, uh, that's the way it should go. I think all the members should get together and have meetings and discuss this health care system between them all, not one fighting for their own district, just one. Yeah, I think, you know, municipalities do play a role, I think, in the delivery of health care. For instance, even when there is just the need to have conversations with the provincial government and specifically the deputy minister responsible for health care recruitment and retention, just so that she, and her name is Dr. Megan Hayes, so that she can put together recruitment packages that suit the area. Because there's, you know, lots of upsides that would be different, say, for instance, working on Fogo Island or Bonavista or Burgio or St. Anthony or Happy Valley Goose Bay or St. John's. So all of those packages are going to have to be tailored to the region. So I think the municipalities do play a role. Bonavista obviously thinking outside the box with a municipal bonus of cash going to a doctor, selling them a serviced uh, building lot for a dollar. So I don't know if that's the right or wrong thing, but they're desperate. So they're doing whatever they can to try to bring some healthcare workers to their town. The province, or pardon me, the regional health authority has given funding for two new doctors and two nurse practitioners. That's all fine and dandy. Now what you have to do is find them. Yeah, we have to find them, but it still seems like a competition. Like Whitburn wants doctors, this one wants doctors. Are the RDMHs getting together and trying to solve the problem? Yeah, I suppose high level trying to solve the problem. But, of course, if I'm an MHA for uh, one region or another, I really need my constituents to get what they need. So they all, as much as we're trying to talk about, you know, fighting the good fight for the entirety of the province, the MHAs do have a duty to represent their constituents. So, for instance, if it's talking about Bonavista, the PC member is Craig Party. So, of course, he's going to fight to get a doctor at the health care uh, center or the emergency department in Bonavista. So... You know, I guess there's probably a to and fro here. There's the big highlight headline items and trying to work uh, together, but there's also a need for the MHAs to do what they can for the people who voted for them, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think they're just trying to wean out so much, so much there. I, don't, I can't understand it. <laughs> Pardon me? I believe, they're, I believe they're trying to keep them separated more and not let out the information. Like, we're, we're the people. That's the smallest ones we can go to. So these should be able to go and get answers to most everything that's happening here on Northern and Labrador. Yeah, I don't even know who has all the answers. If, if they're out there, I've never heard of them. 
Uh, can what Canada and MHH get together and send one to get information on what is happening in Newfoundland? So to get it from who? From the uh, minister uh, yeah. or the premier or who are we talking about? I'm sorry. Like whatever has happened with all health care is a big thing. All but we everything is done and we don't get no answers. To answer is all signed up. If you had uh, one or two specific questions you'd like to get an answer to, what would they be? Uh, how come the healthcare system is as bad as it is? <laughs> yeah, now that's a big one. Uh, without it, without any information being given to we to after everything is, seems like it's done and signed up, and then we get that do we get stamps? And, and I'm asking this out of genuine curiosity. So you know that big question about why is it broken or seemingly broken? But give us a, a specific question because if if you have one, then I can try to get an answer to it. Yeah, I'd like for all the MPs to get together and send one or two to fire wherever the meetings, big meetings, are, the elites are taking them off and come back to the public and give them the answer before anything is signed or anything. We get we get answers after everything is done. And there's a couple of different areas where that is probably very appropriate comments. Like, for instance... What exactly are we talking about regarding the Upper Churchill with the province of Quebec or Hydro-Quebec? You know, what are the questions that are being debated or discussions that are ongoing? We kind of have an inkling because, you know, some people think it's looking backwards. Some people think it's about the next 18 years. Some people think it's about Gull Island. So that's a good example of, you know, we might not get a sense of exactly what's in that end result before it gets signed. So there's lots of, that's a, it's a fair point to make. Sometimes, and maybe oftentimes, the deals are done, the pen has hit the paper before we really know what we signed on to. Yeah, well, that is the problem we have got to, we got to solve. I appreciate you making time for the show, Gary. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, health really does dominate, and it needn't dominate every call here if you'd like to spread it around, spread the love, spread the wealth. We're happy to take that on. But in regards to the, I guess, the establishment of a committee, which is Jennifer Williams, Dennis Mahoney, and Carl Smith, who are going to be representing this province in the ongoing conversation with Hydro-Quebec and the province of Quebec regarding whatever it is they're talking about. And I believe I've heard the opposition make this point, is that let's just say, no matter what, whatever it is that they're talking about, if there's going to be a new arrangement arrived at, whether it be for the remaining years between now and 2041 regarding the Upper Churchill or anything else, including Gull Island or whatever, will we get a clear understanding, a detailed understanding of exactly what the deal in principle is, a debate in the House of Assembly, opportunity for the public to have a, have a look at it and to try to absorb exactly what the deal is going to mean for the people of the province, or are we going to be told we've, we've reached a deal and the deal is done and off we go? Because with everything surrounding, whether it be the emotions and the reality of the resentment in this province regarding the 1969 contract, would it be in the politicians' best interest, and I would suggest it would be in their best interest, for us to get a real clear understanding of what we're talking about before we enter into any new agreement? What do you think? You can let us know after this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number one, John, you're on the air. Top of the morning to you. You too. I hope you people in out there are having such a great day as we are on the West Coast here. Where are you on the West Coast, John? Pardon? Where are you on the West Coast? Oh, it's Cornerbrook. Okay. Uh, I, I wanted to... Uh, 
bring to the attention that you know the, the government um, wanted to put a tax on soft drinks and and all things like that, sugar tax or whatever. The or, sugar tax, yep. So to keep, so to get everybody to drink healthier, and yet still now here we are. You go and buy juice. Uh, instead of soft drinks, and they're charging you a 15% sales tax on it. You know, I, t- I tried to find out why they're pay- why we're paying t- taxes on on juice, because it's, it's, it's that's considered, I suppose, it is a uh, grocery product, and groceries are supposed to be exempt from from taxes. Yeah, unless there's something that was made in the store. Like if somebody's made a sandwich and sold it to me, they can tax that. But if I bought the uh, the meat myself to make my own sandwich at home, no tax on that. No, but I'm talking about juice now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, you go you go and buy a, 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 a liter of 1.78 liters, is it? In the bottle now. One, uh, it's, uh, one... Whatever the size is, yes. Yeah, whatever it is. Anyway, you buy the the bottle and they charge you 15% tax on it. And you have to pay the deposit on the bottle. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah, the deposit is pretty standard given that it's plastic. But yeah, I get where you're coming from. You know, I I, I understand the deposit because you get five cents back on it. but uh, And you keep it in a landfill, stuff like that. But to pay a tax on it, you know, this is supposed to be a grocery product, and we're drinking it instead of the, the drinks with the sugar and all that. So why why are we taxing I'm trying to find out, but I can't get no, no answers from anybody. Okay, I can read you something directly from uh, the, the website that talks about GST, HST. Of course, in this province, we pay HST, and we have since... Uh, 1997, and in 2016, we went from 8% to 10% to get us to the 15 that we pay today. Okay, here we go. Some beverages contain a combination of both fruit and vegetable juices and may be considered fruit-flavored beverages or fruit juice beverages. Where this is the case, only the fruit juice content is taken into consideration when determining whether the 25% vi-volume threshold has been met. If the product is not considered to be a fruit juice beverage or fruit-flavored beverage, it will be zero-rated, provided it is not excluded from zero-rating by another paragraph. If that makes any sense to you, because it makes very little sense to me. <laughs> don't make no sense to me. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to be helpful. I got myself more confused there now by reading that out. Anyway, but that's directly from the government of Canada. Yeah, you know, I think it's ridiculous. Anyway, I just, I just thought I'd let you know have a little say about it. Sure. Anyway, you have a good day. You too, John. All the best. Thank you. Bye bye. Now. You know, I don't. I know it hasn't been in place a long, long time, but it's probably about six months now. Is it? Wasn't the sugar tax brought in in September? So, it would be curious to know what we're seeing early on here about if people have really changed their purchasing habits and continuing to buy the full bore Pepsi versus the diet varieties. Some of the exemptions that we were told would be in place that people have been still paying the sugar tax on, even though we thought we were going to be exempt from one product or another. And you know how much money has the government brought in at this point? The forecast was over the course of a year, they thought maybe $9 million. There was also a commitment at that time to uh, create new programs for the sugar tax windfall when that never really happened either. We're talking about more monies for Kids Eat Smart and organizations that are absolutely doing great work, but we didn't 
really see everything that was told to us when the whole sugar tax was devised. Now, whether or not it's even going to work, I think, is highly debatable. In places where they've seen some attention to the amount of sugar consumed, and not, not all sugars are bad for you, and things are, like usual, it's about uh, mediation, uh, or moderation, pardon me. So... Like, for instance, in the U.K., they taxed the producer. So they were forced to lower their sugar content as opposed to thinking that the consumer would make so-called better decisions with their dollars and the stuff they drink. Let's go to line number three. Lindsay, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning, Paddy. Good morning. Yeah, I'd like to talk about... Well, first of all, I would like to uh, express my condolence towards the Gordon, Gordon Betson family for the loss of a great Newfoundlander. Absolutely. Okay, and I, I met him once when I was in Gander. And I shook his hand and I told him, you know, I said I'd sell him on some of his radio or TV shows and Roadie Man. And I saw him on that the other day. I said, I saw you on Corner Gas. Yeah, he says, that's me, you know, making a fool of myself in front of everybody. You know, that's the type of person he was. He, he said that to me as if I knew him all my life. Yeah, I met him once and once only as well, and he was very pleasant with us, yeah. Yeah, yeah, pleasant with me too, you know. Good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, anyway, so much for that. Now, <sighs> any, uh, what I want to talk about is the uh, discussion that Premier Fury had with uh, Premier Legault, I think that's his name, from Quebec. That's right. And, uh, like, the way I see that now, like, it's been such a long time since Joey Smallwood made that deal back in when 68 or 69, whenever it was. 69. Yeah, that's about almost 50 years ago or over 50 years ago. Right. Like that. So I think they should scrap that deal, just scrap the whole thing and get a brand new deal. In a, in a case where a, where both provinces can have the equal amount, like 50% for everybody. That's not going to happen. Provinces. You know, just scrap it and start a brand new, new one going forward from then on. Sure, but why would anyone think or believe that there's going to be that contract scrapped? Because we've taken them to court. I think it's seven times, and every time they were willing to fight us in court. So if there was any consideration of scrapping the contract, they were simply unwilling to even reopen it for a renegotiation versus, okay, scrap that 50-50. So there's, no, there's nothing out there leads me to believe that uh, Quebec has that type of appetite. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Mr. Legault was saying, like, it should be a win-win situation for both provinces. That's what he was saying. Yeah, it's easy enough to say. You know, so, you know, that's what it, a win-win situation to me is a 50% for everybody, you know. And any increase that they have on to the customers, we get 50% of that. Yeah, right now, they buy it for two-tenths of a cent and sell it for about 8.2 cents. Yeah, like, you know, we're not getting a fair share of the deal. Of, People uh, realize you know, that. Like, but not only that, but uh, Quebec's at, uh, what, 36, 37 percent of the shares? But the other 66 or 67 percent belongs to uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. So why don't we get that 66 or 67 percent of the shares? Well, I mean, it's one thing to have an equity stake of whatever percentage. The contract that has that is the problem is that the amount of money that Hydro-Quebec committed to pay per megawatt or kilowatt is set. And that's that. So the equity stake is not really as important as the contract that uh, speaks to the specific amount of money that they would spend per kilowatt per megawatt. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, if they keep up... Uh, our premier uh, fury 
and uh, Mr. Legault does it again, you know, like to keep doing this, maybe we could get some kind of a consensus to uh, scrap the uh, first deal and come up with a new one, like a 50-50% for everybody. Well, I'm sure everybody would love nothing more than to see the next 18 years much more yeah. equitable. But yeah. again... I, I know I would love to see it. Because, of course. You see, I'm going to be an old man by the t- if I live that long by 2041. Right. I mean, uh, I don't know even what exactly is being negotiated. That's where all the, some of the confusion lies, right? I mean, are we talking about just the Upper Churchill contract? Are there any implications regarding Muskrat? Are there any implications regarding Gull Island? Are they talking about anything about the so-called Atlantic Loop, which is simply a branding exercise? But these things are all in play. It may be, yeah. or uh, maybe not, but it would be nice when, to know. When it comes to uh, don't, uh, uh, developing the additional people said the other day they want their discussions first or something like that. I'm sorry, what does that, are you talking about the Innu? Yeah, yeah, the Inuit. Uh, the Innu, it's Innu Nation uh, in this yeah, case. Yeah, they're saying that they want want their discussions first or their, their share first. Well, what specifically is going on there is, but the New Dawn Agreement was signed that allowed for Muskrat to proceed, and there are environmental assessments that have been done at Gull. What they're saying is, with the rate mitigation plans, that's what people call rate mitigation, with the most recent one, what that means overall to the Innu Nation is a billion dollars less in revenue going to them. They also have hydro go back in court now suing them for billions of dollars regarding the environmental devastation because of the upper Churchill. So those two things. And without those being addressed, the Inu Nation say, as far as they're concerned, any further development, including Gull Island, is dead. Yeah. Well, they like, as uh, you see, when all this was signed back in 1969, there wasn't that much about the environment going on, you know. But That's I know, like, fair. the end of uh, Labrador, like, out on the coast, they got all free power and stuff like that. They don't pay for the hydro because they all come from Church of Falls out there. Yeah, I don't know specifically what communities get the uh, power directly from the Upper Churchill. I'm really not sure, to be honest with you, off the top of my head. I'm a bit late for like the break, Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay. And, uh, McCovic and, and communities like that, you know. I don't know about down on the southern part of Larry. Uh, no, I don't think so. Well, there's a lot of those communities around diesel fire generation. Uh, I appreciate the time, Lindsay. After the news, I go. Yeah, okay. That's All the best. Okay, thank you. Hey, you're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I haven't really considered the Atlantic Loop implication because, I mean, that was out there, right? The feds proposed it, and then they all of a sudden had to do their due diligence on what they referred to as a $5 billion project. They announced it. There was nothing to it. Then they had to go back and do due diligence. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, Jeff is here to talk about e-logbooks. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing this morning? Great today. Thanks. How about you? No, not too bad, boy. Just uh, weathering out this uh, cold snap we had uh, the last few days. It's been chilly, so apparently a daytime high of minus five. The, high, the warmest has been in 10 days. Yeah, I know, boy. Well, I mean, we're not really used to it because, I mean, given the fact that the last few years, and uh, you know, you have those scattered dips where uh, temperatures are dipped down for a day or so or a couple of days, very cold, and then I go up to like plus five or plus six degrees. So, I mean, you you wouldn't really uh, be able to have time to comprehend the cold for that fact. But uh, this has been a really long, drawn-out uh, cold snap. <laughs> Thankfully, it's been relatively calm because if we had to factor in a big load of wind, I know it's over oh, yeah. in the minus 20s today for wind chill in this region, but if it had to be really windy, man, this would have been unmanageable. 
Well, it would have been, uh, absolutely. And uh, I mean, never, nevertheless now, I mean, this is going to make for uh, a lot of sea ice uh, coming uh, coming up now for this new uh, new fishing season too. And I was got to, people, harvesters got to be aware of, there's going to be a lot of sea ice around. But anyway, um, my call for today, Patty, is uh, after attending the AGM meeting in um, Gander uh, this weekend, number of topics came up and uh, a lot of good topics came up um the agm meeting uh, pertaining to uh, cnl and um was really was a really good uh, event uh, a lot of good like i said uh, topics come up there but uh patty the one thing that i did come away with from the meeting was uh was uh, e-logs electronic logs for fish harvesters and this is all uh, pertaining to uh, harvesters from anything in the commercial industry from an 18-foot speedboat up to whatever whatever size, as long as you're in the commercial fishing industry. And this entails, uh, Patty, uh, electronic logs whereby the old-fashioned paper logbooks is not going to be no more uh, of service. Uh, this is what DFO is, is coming out with. And coming this year, it's going to be on a volunteer basis and this is going to be um, this is going to be uh, basically uh, on any Android device, your cell phone, or whatever the case might be. You can download this app from DFO um, and and uh, enter all your your uh, your fishing activity for that uh, different species. Right. I actually had had a quick read about that. I think it's called Veracatch. Veracatch is the company that is promoting this uh, this, okay. uh, this new technology. Yes, you're absolutely right. But, Patty, the one thing that comes to my mind is that I don't know about about anybody else, but I'm to the yin-yang when it comes to fees and with DFO. Uh, you know, I mean, this is, a, this is a going to be another fee that's going to be put on harvesters now for enabling uh, DFO to be doing their work much more manageable and with a lot less um, with a lot less effort because it's electronic and they're going to have much more easier access to um, your fishing species. Uh, now the thing that uh, I'm appalled over is that this is um, uh, just to go back a little bit the old fishing paper log books uh, for the most part, back in the day, they were free. DFO used to give them out. They were free, and, and you filled it out, and you passed it in at the end of the fishing season. And they done their calculations and their works, and, you, and they sent it out and sent it back to you, and everything was fine. Um, nowadays, uh, you still have the paper log books. You fill them out. You do the same thing. But if there's any technicalities with it, they send them out to you. You have to make the, the necessary changes. And you uh, you send it back and so on and so forth. But now it's it's some logs now. If you got to get them in the mail, it's a fee with them. It's a small fee for the logbook. But if you go to um, the FFAW Professional Fish Harvesters, uh, you can pick them up. I think they're still free. You can pick them up and and uh, and use them according to. But Patty. Um, this fee is associated now with per species. It's based on now. I don't know who came up with the, the the magic number, but this this um, this e logs electronic logbooks is going to cost fish harvesters per species sixty dollars per species per year. No, per 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 species. Uh, yes, that's right. Per year. Okay. Yes. Uh, but if you got a number of species uh, in a year that you're fishing. So you know what's where that goes to. It's sixty dollars this year. It's seventy dollars next year, and so on and so forth. So what my what my uh, what my uh, 
uh, uh, uh, thing is, uh, is that I'm not uh, in a position to be spending more money to do DFO services. In my opinion, this should be uh, a service that is going to uh, pay for by DFO. If we, if DFO wants harvesters to do this service and to enable them to do their work much more easier and more efficiently, why is harvesters having to pay for their work that is going to make their job much easier? Yeah, I suppose that would require a direct contract between DFO and Very Catch that Absolutely. excludes any uh, fee for the harvester. Just let me ask a couple of questions because I don't know much about it, but when I gave it a quick look earlier this week, I think I saw that Veracatch has only been used for two species anyway, and it's been in Canada for about 10 years or so, but it was only for lobster and crab. So has it been expanded that it's going to include everything? Well, you know yourself, Patty. I mean, once this gets off the ground, and the other thing that comes to mind, too, with this, and I mean, was, 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 uh, it was talked about at the AGM meeting with the CNL there in Gander. Uh, the other thing is that we got harvesters that is... is uh, is uh, is is uh, coming up to retirement age or whatever the case might be, they're not overly inclined when it comes to technology. So a lot of issues that was talked about at the meeting uh, at the AGM was that there is harvesters that uh, is not going to be fully understandable when it comes to entering in all your uh, your necessary uh, requirements for those e-logs, and therefore it's going to be catastrophic to the harvester because if the log book is not sent, not properly filled out, then Anything could could happen with regards to charges, or could be uh, uh, so on and so forth. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the, the, when it comes to DFO and and getting information and everything else, I mean, those harvesters that is not uh, is not uh, uh, up to par with electronic with technology. You know, it causes a bit of anxiety and stuff and stress with them. And coupled with that, come next year when it comes mandatory, according to what they're saying. Uh, is that uh, you, you won't be able to go back to your paper logbook. So this is going to be a mandatory. So, like, my point today is that I would like to see, and harvesters uh, uh, like myself would like to see, more time given to this so that it can be trashed out a little bit more and the fee wavered and... Uh, and uh, and and not having to uh, not having to pay for this fee because right now on crab, for example, it's sixty dollars for 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 the crab season, and um, cod it could be a bit more. And like fellow says, like fellow said and talked around uh, the tables that you know, okay, this is going to this is going to be just for crab. It's going to be for lobsters. It's going to be for capelin. It's going to be for herring. And I mean, you got to realize that. A lot of those species are not uh, big, big money, uh, big money species. So therefore, you know, you're paying this extra fee on top of the other fees that we have to pay. But that's not the point. We're doing DFO services, and we're having to pay for their services that they're they're getting off the hook for, and just making their job much easier. Okay, so I mean, I think you hit a key point there. Anyway, it would be a key point in my mind is if you have the most profitable uh, species like crab, which landed value almost eight hundred million dollars last year. So if there was a fee, well, just round number, sixty bucks for that species, but for capelin it was five bucks or zero. Maybe Maybe a floating scale might be something that folks could swallow or to live with. When they described the electronic logbook, because it works in a variety of industries, did they paint any picture as to why they think there's an upside for the harvester, whether it be how you make your business decisions or how the uh, information is stored and how who protects it? Was any of that discussed or was simply here it comes? Well, that, uh, that's pretty much, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> 
that's pretty much in a nutshell, yes. But the thing, the key thing with this is that, you know, when it comes to uh, attending uh, DFO meetings and uh, doing stock assessments and stuff, a lot of this stuff is like, you know yourself, DFO is going to come out with this as 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 a as a positive issue and trying to get people on the hook to try to take take this. And I mean, for myself and other harvesters, I don't really appreciate the thing that we have to pay this extra fee for their services that they're going to avail of yeah. and we we having to pay for it but like you said you're, you're you're probably right in saying that you know this is a this is something that the harvester will benefit from uh yes uh because when you go to uh, uh stock assessment meetings the the uh the uh the, the the accessibility to your 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 log uh, to your season would be uh, would be much more would be much more accessible because you got an electronic device that you can download it and say look this is the, this is the number of traps I hauled this is the this is the amount of species that I got from the trap and and so on and so forth whereas the paper log it's much more harder to to avail of that but Patty that in itself is one thing but the fact that this fee is being uh, being put on harvesters, and if you got five or six or four or five or six species to catch, this is extra fees that we're going to be already uh, is going to be put on us. That we already uh, for myself, I'm feed to death. I'm uh, everything we come to the wharf, everything we done turns around to do for offloading for for uh, for for bait and for for everything else is is oodles uh, is fees coming out of your yin yang. And now, couple sure. this, you're talking about the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Uh, putting this fee on harvesters now, and like it goes back to the to the to the system that we already have on board. Now it's called a VMS in layman's terms, like you know a black box. But uh, again, we're paying for that service. I get it. So just quickly, the fee you're going to pay to the company, not paying it to DFO, that would be paid right to Veracatch, wouldn't it? Absolutely. But Veracatch is working for DFO for to get this service for DFO. Okay, and last one, are you just? guessing based on history that it's going to become mandatory as opposed to optional or did they tell you there's a one-year trial and then there's then it's coming mandatory or is that just a guess no uh, no it's a good question no absolutely no this year is going to be voluntary and next year apparently that they're going to be rolling out the uh the, the, the carpets for 2024 that it's going to be a mandatory uh it's going to be a mandatory uh device uh, that for all harvesters from 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 uh, uh, like I said an 18 foot fishing boat up to uh, whatever and uh, this this service is going to be uh, is going to be uh, made available and coupled with that uh, I don't think when it comes mandatory next year that you'll be able to go back to your uh, your paper because I asked the question I said what about given the fact that it's electronic it's uh, it's uh, it's on your android device it's a cell phone you get up in the morning you comes out to go fishing you drop your your drop your your phone or it breaks do that mean that you cease fishing you can't go out fishing today because your android device is broken you can't enter your your information while you're fishing or do it mean that you can go back to your fishing log carry on your day's catch go back to your paper fishing log and come in and and uh, and send it in that way and they said well right now the way it is the way it appears to be is that the uh, the Android device or your cell phone is going to be used for the uh, for the, um, the download the service for download your your species, and that's where it's, that's where it's to. So, I have a real problem with the okay. fact that this has been like give us more time. Or uh, the other thing, Patty, is that we could have it in a in a way that cost shared through the harvester and through DFO or through government or something or another like that, not putting the full 
detriment of the service on harvesters. I don't agree with it. And I okay, and Jeff, I point, point taken, but very quickly, and last question because I do have to go. Who presented this information? Was there a DFO representative there, or is it simply someone at CNL gave you the info, or was Veriketch in, in the room? So who told you about this? Veriketch, there was two personnel there rep, uh, 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 with Veriketch, and they basically rolled out to what the what uh, progress was going to be. Okay. And Basically, uh, uh, you know, it is what it is, and this is this is where it stands. But I, t- I, 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 I took it away, uh, Patty, just just quickly. I've taken away the fact that, and I mentioned to water harvesters that this fee is not acceptable uh, for for harvesters, and therefore, uh, why do we have to pay a service that DFO is uh, is offering and making their work much easier? Appreciate the time, Jeff. Thank you. All the best, buddy. We'll be in touch with you. Have a good one. Take care. Bye bye. Yeah, I mean the digital age is here right i mean it's going to change a lot of things uh how we doing in the queue there david today's a good day to get on the show if you're in the st john's metro region the number to dial is 273-5211 elsewhere it's toll free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626 we're taking a break and then we're coming back welcome back to the program let's go to line number three morgan you're on the air yes good day patty good day to you yeah, a couple of calls back there. You had a, a gentleman on talking about uh, Lower Churchill and how uh, uh, the indigenous gave it a thumbs down. And, and, and apparently you mentioned, too, there was a suit on the go up in Quebec. They're suing Quebec for some development they had up there. I mean, to say, uh, to me, has, that's, who are these people? I mean, to say, they, they have a right just to put their input in and, and suggest the project by all means. Look after the environment. Don't do damage to it for all of us. It's their uh, land, though. Uh, well, Patty, I don't want to sound nasty. They should look after their own land themselves where they're living. Do you remember Davis Inlet? I do, but the fact of the matter is, for the ability to do the construction work on site, they had a legal right to the land. So if it was my land, I'd, I'd want to be compensated. I want to be consulted. A legal right to what land? What land are we talking about? Lower Church? Do they own that? No. The, what do you mean? The, on the water? Yes. I mean, they say the development down at the Lower Church. And let's, let's extend it a little bit more. I read in the news, on the, uh, I think it was on VOCM or CBC two evenings ago, uh, the indigenous, the Indians up in, no, in New Brunswick, are given a thumbs down, a no-go right to Bay Nord. Look, there's one million Indians in Canada, and there's 38 million of us. Everybody should have an input in, and by all means, not the federal government or the provincial governments develop anything without anybody, without everybody's input. And and for, for I don't know, these people are taking. The, I I don't mean they. We're all Canadians. They seem to have total control of of uh, and of, and the governments listening to them. But they're I, but they're not though. They're not listening to Indigenous New Brunswick regarding Beta Nord because the federal government released the Beta Nord project. Exactly. But they wanted it turned down. And in a lot of cases now, when, when they have an input and say no, uh, it is turned down. They're, they're, like, uh, I remember a uranium company up in the northern Quebec about 10 years ago had a, a fine, a substantial fine, would be uh, beneficial to all of Quebec's population. The, in, the Indians, the indigenous, had it turned down, went to court, and, the, and they ruled that was in the, in the, in the it was a, near, it wasn't on indigenous land, but near it, and they turned the whole thing down, and today that has not gone. 
Now, I, I understand. I don't want to see... It kills me to go in the woods and see Coke cans and bags of chips floating. I got all the same concern. But, I, you know, each year that one million... Indian, or the, uh, what do you call them, the First Indigenous Nations. Indigenous First Nations they get, peoples. They get $36 billion a year from the coffers. Now you say, what do you, what's, that, what's that your... Con- That's my taxpayer. My taxpayer dollar and yours. $36 billion a year for the nations, of, including our own, too, of Natwishish and, and, and Khan River. And on the same news item that evening that I saw that, that uh, Trudeau was on talking about uh, the 20 billion, I talked to you there last week about that and the, and the Catholic Church, or the week sometime, uh, getting off the hook, and we are the taxpayer paying for it. My concern is the taxpayer dollar, mine, my children, and yours. That's what, that's what bothers me. Now, all power to them if they can, if they can uh, talk to the federal government and give them $36 billion a year. And then that same news item, there was a chief come on from northern Saskatchewan talking about the federal government. Uh, their, their, pop, their reserve hasn't had drinking water for 20 years, clean drinking water. They showed the uh, infiltrate the filtration systems and all that. Nothing worked. Mm-hmm. What are they doing with the $36 billion, Patty? I don't know. I, how could I possibly answer that? But, I mean, you know, there's a job to answer. That's right. This I has been settled. $36 billion oh, a year. Hold on. Their share of no, no Brunswick. Uh, all I'm saying is look after their own concerns. Look after their, after their youngsters and everything else. They've got too much control, to my mind. And I got no disrespect for the union, but the government is paying too much attention to them, turning stuff down. And, Isn't there and, historical and issues at play here, though, Morgan? Isn't it bigger than today's snapshot in time regarding indigenous rights and land claims and all of these types of things? These things have been settled by federal governments, and it's not a Trudeau thing either. This has been the, the exact same uh, process for whether it be pipelines across indigenous lands or all the rest of it. The process is the process. And this, things have been settled in the courts. So isn't there a, an historical issue that also has to be blended into this conversation about whose land and why and who should have some say and who should not? Definitely. Okay. I, I agree with you 100%. Yes, everybody have a say, including me, you, and everybody else, but not listen to their total concerns totally. I mean to say, yes, I suppose listen to the concerns, but not at the expense of everybody else, Patty. Yeah, but... It seems to me... <coughs> say one thing. Now, you go on, say what you're going to say. All I was going to say is, you know, this all started about uh, the upper Churchill, and then it went on debate in order, and who has what kind of say and what kind of clout. The agreement was signed pretty easily, the New Dawn Agreement, as far as I can recall, for Muskrat to get a green light from the indigenous groups uh, there. And when it came to debate in order, there were lots of pushback from lots of people, including indigenous groups, but yet it got green lit. So it kind of depends on the project and where as to how much clout is given to one person, one organization, one First Nations or otherwise. So I don't think that's, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all here. I think that's a moving target and kind of depending on the project, the scope and the scale and the impact and all the rest of it, that has to be discussed, right? Yeah. But it seems to me the federal government is just throwing money at the situation, uh, at the uh, indigenous every time they come in. Like you say, they get their uh, grants per year. And we talked last week there about uh, about the, the payment of $20 billion for the class action, and I hope, I hope to hell and pray that the youngsters, uh, the way that's going to work, so far as I can understand, that we're just off track a little bit there, that those uh, victims of the residential schools that are still alive are going to receive compensation, and I hope it gives them some closure. But the other $20 billion I referred to, like long-term, unreserved child welfare system, 
I'm going to quote Trudeau here now. He said he gave it he gave it to the Indian reservations to do with as they see fit. Twenty billions of our taxpayer dollars given to the Indian reservations to do with as they see fit. Final thought. Go ahead. Let me close on this note now. I know you're getting mad, but I'm get I'm I'm mad about it too. Not, not yeah. just the way it's being handled. I'm not getting mad, but I mean we're we're going down a fairly rude road at this point. But I'll let you wrap it up. Go ahead. I'll wrap her up in this one. It's not only from our own Labrador and ask for harvesting grants. Okay? Harvesting grants get back to the land and go berry picking and hunting is the way they put it. And the government, in, not even without consultation, within a month gave them $8 million a year for perpetuity. And you know what they did with the money right away? They bought Skidoos. Now, that's not me. How do you know? I guess it was in the news. They, they, the news. they spent $8 million on Skidoos. When they bought Skidoo, was the minister was uh, uh, approached again, the federal indig- indigenous and crown minister, and said, "You know that they're buying." Sk-? He said, "That's quite all right. That's not me. That's your news items reporting that." I'd like a Skidoo. I'm old. I, I, I lived off the land all my life. I'm starting to feel like a second-class citizen. It's getting to be ridiculous. Okay. Anyhow, Patty, I thanks for your time and ch- thanks for not chopping me off. I'm I pr- say I might sound. Uh, Look, I, I know. You, you said it. You couched it. Uh, Dave wants me to put you on hold for something I'm working, so just hold on a second. Okay. Okay. Uh, news time. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, Seamus O'Keefe. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? Not too bad at all. Good. Thought I'd call in and let you know about the, our favorite time of year, play hockey playoffs. Everybody loves the hockey playoffs. I have been following along with the uh, St. John's Junior Hockey League, and I guess that's what we're talking about today. So you're with the Caps, right? So you guys, I think, finished third just behind Mount Pearl, and, of course, everyone trailed CBN this year. Actually, I'm gonna, we're going to revisit. We're talking senior hockey. Oh, senior hockey. Okay, here we go. Avalon East. Got it. And uh, which I know, I think you know very well over the years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, our season, our quarterfinals have uh, just concluded with um, Harbour Grace uh, defeating uh, Outer Cove Marines. And then in the other quarterfinal was CB Blues beating uh, Claremont Caribou's two games to one in a thrilling uh, three-game series that went overtime in the Saturn game. Yeah, before we even move any further beyond that, it's good to see Outercove back in the ranks. It certainly was. It's been a long-storied franchise. Uh, I know Northeast uh, struggled over the years with some roster, but I think the uh, the impact the Cadigans have had has been significant and, and a good for the league. Yeah, and, you know, I, I'll give kudos where I think they're deserved. Uh, Tommy Beckett put his best foot forward here as well. Absolutely did. No, he's and showed strong leadership throughout the year, and they came to play. I mean, it was an expansion team. Um, you know, they had some trials and tribulations throughout the year, but uh, they gave it their best effort, and we know they're set up for success. There we go. So where are we now in the playoffs? We're starting our semifinals uh, tonight in uh, down Mobile, whereas the Blues will take on Southern Shore Breakers in the first game. And our Roof Tech Senior Caps will open on Saturday night at Jack Arena versus our... our our friends from Harbour Grace, the CB Stars. And for folks who don't know who the Blues are, that would be Conception Bay. 
you're correct, and they play out of the CBS Arena. So all in the quest for the herder. Uh, just a couple of quick questions that have been floating around on the big scheme of things. It's good to see the West Coast back in action with Senior. The crowds have been pretty solid, is my understanding. What's the status of conversation with H&L regarding uh, the West Coast getting back in on some herder action? Because I know that's a tricky one. You know, they, there's a big difference between being a fairly new league again and being up to snuff to play against some of the bigger teams for a herder. Then I heard some rumblings come from Labrador that they want a spot in the herder. What's going on? I haven't heard about the Labrador rumor as of yet, but uh, certainly I think there's there'll be some interest to have a provincial league. There's always been, and if you go back to the heyday of senior hockey, that's where grassroots hockey was the strongest, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people would concur with that thought. Uh, hockey NL has been a big proponent of an East-West final. Um, as you know, I mean, a number of years ago, we took our lumps when we went out and played some of those muddy Grand Falls Cataracts teams, and so well stocked, and we, we, we learned a lot of the bunch. Now the role's reversed, and it's, it's come full circle, and so we're, we're, you know, it's to be a considered a herd champions. It's a great honor, and not only people deserve that right over the years. And and to beat the best in the West, sure, why not? I, I don't think the caliber of hockey is there as of yet. I think uh, there will be some growing pains as they get up to speed, but uh, you do need to start somewhere. And I'm excited to uh, to know that we will play. And so it's been said there's a committee established and dates have been set for a herder final. Yeah, and you mentioned the cataracts. That's when the Caps actually won the Avalon East that year, went out and took some lumps. But, I mean, they were absolutely incredible with some flying players that were out of this world good. And then eventually, though, the Seabees won the East, went out and beat Clarenville to bring the herder back to the East Coast. So that was exciting. So here we go tonight, the CB Blues at the Kenny Williams Southern Shore Arena, of course, in Mobile to take on the Breakers. And the Seabees are the other matchup against the Caps, your Caps, at the Jack Byrne Arena. Yeah, good good to have you on. What else do you want to say this morning? Nope. Puck drops at 8 o'clock. Uh, tickets are $12, and it's a good chance. You know, as you know, with senior team, it's a hard struggle throughout the year. We have uh, long lights, not big crowds, but we uh, we rely on our fans coming out in the playoffs. And there's great hockey. I mean, no doubt that these last four remaining teams are very equally balanced. There wasn't much point difference throughout the year, and we're exciting uh, some long series that will culminate in a, in a great final. Congratulations on a good run so far this year, and good luck to all involved in the semifinals. Thanks for this, Seamus. Thanks, Hey, Cheers now. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, and uh, Kyle Thibault, he was with the Blues. He led the led the league in scoring this year. And some big names still on that list. The Kevin Reeds of the world, Jeremy Nicholas, Mason Reed, of course, the Breed brothers from, I think they're both from Carnival. And Shooty, Brett Shoot is on the list somewhere, of course. Same with the Danny Cadigans of the world, who finished way up there again on the defenseman scoring list. I think it was led by Bobby Upshaw. Uh, let's go to line number one. Margo, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Okay. Uh, just wondering if anyone else in St. John's has suffered uh, with um, water uh, problems. Monday morning we woke up and we didn't have any. What, pipes froze? Uh, yeah, we phoned. Well, we didn't phone. We turned on VICM, of course, to listen to see if there was a water break and no reports. Okay. Then we phoned City Hall who suggested that our pipes were frozen and they could send up a team for $100. Uh, So Gary went downstairs with the hairdryer, and 45 minutes later, he got it free. So consequently, I think it was the previous week, you know, leading up to, you know, all this cold, cold weather. And um, anyhow, uh, so since then, we've been running two of our water pipe, water taps, 
very slowly just to make sure that it doesn't catch again. Have you heard of anyone? I do know someone in the downtown core had their pipes freeze. Uh, yeah. They yeah. they were always worried that it could be a possibility just given the poor insulation around some of the yeah. piping. So yeah, it happened, and that's a nuisance when it happens. Oh my gosh, it was frightening. I growing up, uh, we had to run our water every night because we lived down on Gower Street, but uh, that was a you know that was for the time, right? Yep. But I also wanted to mention that uh, I had a good relationship with Gordon Pinsent as I was in the music band with him when he came here and starred with Louise Nugent in 1974. And uh, he came to the stage when we were practicing at the Arts and Culture, and there was probably about 80 of us in the crew and we, he was told our name, and the next morning he called each and every one of us individually by our correct name. That blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic, eh? But, yeah. My lone interaction with him, and uh, I probably should have called Barb Dorn or someone this week to come yeah. on, because when she, she did a documentary about the life and times of Gordon Pinson, I think it's called uh -huh. Still Rowdy After All These Years. Right. Yeah. And uh, he came into the Out of the Fog Studios, and Chrissy and yeah. I interviewed him, and we actually made the call. We were in the documentary, which we were quite oh, pleased wonderful. with. <laughs> Can you access that these days, or what? Yeah, it's around. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. if I asked Barb uh, how yeah. to get my hands on it, she could probably point me in the right direction. But yeah, we were quite pleased. You know, we thought there's no chance we're actually going to make the cut on this documentary yeah. but we were in there which i thought was awesome that's wonderful and and you know now it's keepsake isn't it 100 percent. yeah but uh, a couple other things is that uh, i had a shop down at the sheraton uh, years ago 2012 and gordon used to come in there and buy um captain dildo aprons <laughs> which i sold 800 of right and even to Gene Simmons, you know, it's uh, just amazing. But uh, there was also one time when myself and Gary um, picked up Gordon down to the Delta because he did a um, he did a, a version for us of uh, uh, the Dickie Bird dish, which is actually a story about a butter dish. That's right. Yeah. And actually, oh my goodness, it's so incredible, and uh, we're just so indebted to the man and. He gave so much. He gave everything he had to everyone he met, of course. But um, God rest him, and uh, thank you for providing this outlet. And the other thing is, is that um, I don't think we'll have to continue running our water at night as it's getting a little wa uh, warmer. But perhaps the warning should go out to people for the uh, for the interim. Yeah, it's the wind that really complicates it, right? Daytime yeah. high of minus five, but still minus 20 out with the wind out there today. So, yeah, okay, chilly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Appreciate this, Margo. No problem. Anytime, hon. Thanks. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Daryl, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How hi. are you today? Not bad. How about you? Oh, good. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. And, uh, Patty, what I want to call about today, I'm talking about, I want to call about the airports, uh, uh, Lake Gander, St. John's Deer Lake, and uh, the price of flying out of these airports. Now, uh, here in Gander with Air Canada, the price has doubled versus St. John's and Deer Lake, and this has been brought to my attention from numerous people. And the sad part about it, people here in Gander and surrounding area, you got to go to St. John's and Deer Lake with an airport on your doorstep, but it's more cheaper to fly out of St. John's and Deer Lake and it don't make no sense why. And Air Canada's prices are doubled compared to these other airports. 
And uh, I was just wondering if you could get someone from Air Canada on your show to address that issue. Why, uh, why Gander? Why is the pricing out of Gander double compared to Deer Lake or St. John's? I should get someone on the show who from where? Pardon uh, me. Say, say somebody from Air Canada. Like, uh, uh, come on your show and ask why is there a big difference in pricing for tickets? Like, you know, Gander's double compared to St. John's or uh, Deer Lake, for example. And this is what's happening. This came to my attention now several times, and and people in pricing, and and a lot of times they're going to St. John's or Deer Lake because it's cheaper to fly out of uh, those airports versus Gander. And it don't make no total sense. And not only that, it's not good for the economy in general, like, you know, trying to promote tourism and, like, say, central Newfoundland or the whole province. But how do you promote tourism when you got skyrocket the airfares in one place and lower in the other? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's wishy-washy and it don't make any sense. Yeah, Air Canada is not going to come on and justify pricing. That much I can guarantee you, uh, based on historical attempts to deal with the airlines. You know, no matter what you touch regarding travel in and out of this province or within the province, it is so extraordinarily expensive that it's simply cost prohibitive for most people. You know, it is just way out of reach. It, and is out of reach is is beyond out of reach because like again how, it don't make sense how, how come one place could be double the price and another another place is is half the price or whatever so uh, uh, so why would Gander be double to fly out of and St John's and Deer Lake is not. I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it just don't make any total sense. And uh, so uh, I know it'd be ideal if you get someone from Air Canada to justify it and why and how come. You probably won't. But uh, wouldn't be no harm to try to make an attempt anyhow and see what they got to say. Yeah, well, I can tell you, having tried in the past, sometimes we don't even get a reply, let alone yeah. a, a confirmation of someone coming on. And, you know, yeah. I've, I see aviation experts saying that these high prices are here to stay. There's not going to yeah. be, you know, once the airlines uh, perform some sort of recovery, given just how much the business fell off during the pandemic, that these high prices are here to stay. And now with Air Canada, seemingly the the regional provider here versus uh, WestJet, the regional provider in the western part of the country, it just further complicates it. You know, some of the low cost airlines, they come and go because the big guys squeeze them out. Yeah, exactly, and and that that is another big problem. I agree with you, and I don't know what happened, but in the mid-'90s, we had the Open Skies Agreement between the U.S. and Canada, and I don't know if that, that might have went to the wayside, but under that agreement, you could have more competition come in and set up. But like you just uh, alluded to, the fact that the big guys are squeezing out the small guys, and, and uh, so it's getting worse and worse, and like you said, the high prices are here to stay, but... But, like, again, I'll reiterate what don't make sense. Why is the price higher uh, in Gander versus St. John's and Deer Lake? It just don't make no sense to me. And we're trying to do things for the better, in general, for the problems of Newfoundland and Labrador. But when you get all this, these uh, things happening, it's, like, it's doing, to me, it's doing more harm than good. And uh, someone wants to take a good, serious look at this in general air travel is a problem here in this province there's no doubt about it and you know it's yeah. not only tourism which is a big deal it's uh, has an impact on business as well and i would imagine it has an impact on even something as fundamental as recruiting healthcare workers when they look at just how expensive and difficult it is to fly in and out of here that does indeed lead them down the road of how they make their decisions 
Uh, Daryl, appreciate the time. We'll yeah. see what we can do with the airlines. Yeah, and like said, and you're right on the mark. What you just said is like domino effects. So if you can try your best, anyhow, uh, nothing venture, nothing gain. Fair ball. Thanks for this. Okay. Okay. Thanks for your time, Patty. All the best to you and your listening audience. My pleasure. Take care. All bye right. Bye. Take care. You as well. All right. Uh, final word goes to line two. Harold, you're on the air. Hello. Good day, Patty. Good day to you. Yeah, I just wanted to call it in reference to uh, several callers ago. We had a gentleman who said he feels like a second-class citizen. Uh, sort of, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's about this new, the way the Western democracies are, we're reorganizing now, and we're setting up a new class system, you know, and it's not right. I thought we were a meritocracy where everybody is judged on their, their merits. But we're setting up in a way where we have aboriginals at the top, LGBTQ on the second level, colored and visible minorities on the third. I don't know where white men fall, but I know it's near the bottom. Harold, I mean, you can't be serious in telling me that there's a class of uh, oppressed people in this country that are white men. Of course there is. Of course there's not. If I apply, if, if me and an Aboriginal and an LGBTQ and a woman apply for the same job, and my score is higher, I'm not going to be chosen. You can't tell me that that's not true. Well, I mean, it's a pretty generalized statement to make with nothing to back it up. I mean, let's nothing be honest. White men have ruled the roost. I'm a white man. White men have ruled the roost forever. And to this day, the vast majority of money and power in this country lie in the hands of white men. It's just indisputable fact. No, I don't deny it. But we shouldn't be punished for the sins of our fathers. I had nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with any oppression. I've never oppressed anyone in my life. So let's not reorganize our society and pay back the sins of our fathers onto the people that are here now. But there's something inside of that. Let let me add this to it. Okay. Forever and a day, it was the exact opposite of what you just referenced. So, But what that insinuates is that every time that a job is applied for, inevitably it would be the white guy should get it versus the woman or the members of the LGBTQ community or an indigenous person or a visible minority. So that's how that kind of translates when people listen to it critically, Harold, is that you're saying that men deserved what they got over the years and they don't shouldn't deserve any less in the future no i'm not saying that i'm saying let's just start from now and everyone's on the same equal footing let's have a meritocracy you judge on your merits if that aboriginal or that woman scores higher in the test or has more qualifications then you get the job but if i have more qualifications and i happen to be white i should still get that job let's not bring it i can't heal the past none of us can Let's stop digging up the past and let's get to the future and everybody's equal and let's take it from there. Yeah, but who's to say that, say, for instance, it's, uh, myself and a woman are the final two candidates for one position. Why is it all of a sudden that anyone should think that I should get it because that's the way it was? Who's to say that the woman is not a better fit for the job? No, if she is and if she scores higher on the test or has better aptitude in, in that job, of course she should get it. I have no problem with that. But it's going to come to the point where you're going to get people who are flying planes, not because they're the most skilled at it, but because they're they're a part of a certain minority group. No, you have to pass you have to pass a test to get a pilot's license. They don't give them out like based on who you are, what you of look course. like. Of course. So if you pass the test and the white guy has top score. And the, the colored guy has the second top score. The colored guy's getting it. You're not going to take the cream of the crop. Says who? Says all the air. Just check it out. They're all pushing that they want to hire minorities. You know, they want to balance it. 
And again, Dave just asked me an interesting question. My ear. Who's they? Who's they are saying that? They is the general is the Western liberal democracies. This is what we're pushing. All governments in the West that I can see, I, I haven't seen any that you know are, are avoiding it, except for maybe Florida or Alberta a little bit. Not great examples, but do you think an opportunity to level the playing field is also part of meritocracy? Yes, for sure it is. And I think it should be. Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. A level playing field. Right now, it's not. If you come in as a woman or a minority, you're already put on another plane above the other guy before you see anything. We know it's true. Come on, you can admit it. No, what, what, I, what I absolutely can uh, admit is that some of this feels and sounds like that people yearn for the days of old where they're the only ones who had a chance. You know, legitimately speaking, they were the only guys that were going to get the jobs of power. They were going to be at the helm of every Fortune 500 company. They were going to get all the political appointments. They were going to get all the folks who were elected. It's not that long ago. Women had, I mean, women not too far outside of my lifetime weren't allowed to, allowed to use a credit card. So shouldn't there be some adjustments? There should. And, and the adjustment should be equal equal level playing field for everyone. Not, not put one on the other to try and balance it out. That's... This that's in the past. We all know how bad it was then. Okay, everybody's equal. Everybody's normal. Everybody's the same. Let's just go from there. But yeah. it's not when when a government agency puts out a hire, puts out a call for people. You know yourself. They put it at the top of the list. We want women. You know, they want they gender want diversity. Yeah. yeah. And you know what sometimes happens in those types of businesses that have more and more gender diversity? They're more and more efficient and more and more productive. And a lot of real big upside comes from it. Don't uh, take it from me. Take it from companies that have taken that approach and seen what it means for their ongoing operations. So I think there's room for everyone to play a role in productivity and efficiency and getting a job and being a leader uh but anyway harold we're 1201 and 24 seconds but i appreciate the time take care of yourself all right thank you all right bye-bye uh we are out of time we'll pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye-bye